Boxcaster online. Authorization accepted. Upload confirmed. Begin transmission. How can you be so blasé about this, Nemiel? asked Sariel. We're talking about killing fellow knights. Nemiel shook his head. No, we're talking about killing our enemies. Whether they're fellow knights or not is immaterial. Whatever the rights and wrongs of it, in the heart and fire of war, the initial cause of the dispute between us and the knights of the Lupus will soon be forgotten. Even the war won't linger long in memory. That's tragic, said Sariel. Such is the tragedy of human existence, said Nemiel, quoting from the verbatim. The lives of individuals are fleeting ephemeral things, lost amid the unforgiving bloody tides of history. Zariel shook his head. Maybe so, but on Caliban, those tides flow more darkly than most. And what you've just heard is a passage from Descent of Angels by Mitchell Scanlon, the sixth book in the Horace Heresy book series. And that was read to you by my co-host, Greg Dan, here on After Olinor. And I was wonderfully in- introduced by uh, my my co-host, David Whitek. Hey, Greg. Hey, Dave. Oh, gosh. So I, t- I just finished, like literally just finished the book. Thank goodness for field trips. I was able to sit in the long extended lunch and finish Good the stuff. notes. So, uh, after a long delay, here we are with uh, book six. So, um, covers? <laughs> are we, yes, you, dive yeah. straight in. The cover. I quite. I, I don't know where they're fighting. I thought this um, was in the in the the Knights Lupus. And well, it, they're all wearing power armor. Oh, they are, aren't they? These are these are all. Um, oh, that's legit all, power armor. That's not. That's legit power armor. So they are space marines at this point. Um, oh, because they got that backpack thing on. That's how you yeah. can tell. The what is it? It's the, just a, a cool looking scene of. I mean, they're firing back on the ones firing back down the corridor. I thought that's they were moving that way. I thought they were just kind of looking back at you, like, "Hey, let's move forward." Well, there's um, there's one marine behind the two on the front cover who's firing backwards. And the others are firing forwards. So that oh. suggests there might not be the obvious scene we think it is. But um, Oh, wait. Is it, oh, okay. There it is. Yep. The other. Yeah. It's, I it's, don't get it's, the it's, full it's, picture on the inside. I got to like bend my book sh- and look. Ah, sure. Yeah. I, I'm trying to not break my heart back um, looking at <laughs> the, uh, the pictures. But um, I say it's, I don't think it's quite as uh, as striking as a lot, but it's, it's a nice, clean image. I do like the... Um, this kind of look at the Dark Angels thing's brilliant. Well, you know, with these book covers, the way that they break them up, it's like sometimes you see the picture, sometimes you don't. Last time, you know, the one with the great unclean one underneath the blurb was a, was just a dis, a, such a disservice to that, that picture. <laughs> but you're right. I never noticed. I looked at the back, and I was like, the back of my soft cover, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's some more Dark Angels. I didn't realize they're shooting at each other. Well, it seems to suggest seem to that, that one is, yes. Yeah, and it's like, oh, Oh, what the hell's going on there? That's that's not right because that doesn't even happen in the book. But something's no, happening. You know, yeah, I mean, or maybe he's shooting at someone behind them. But it, um, it's 
it almost suggests to me they're not all quite working towards the same goal. Well, uh, th- that would shock da, da, da. me. But uh, <laughs> so, are these guys Raven Wing? Because the guy's got the wings on the helmet, and I'm just asking because I I remember them mentioning it later in the book, with riding on the black horses. The being the I thought that was cool. The fact that they had a Raven Wing yeah, section uh, before they showed up, but we're getting tie, ahead of tying that in was nice. Um, the I'm trying to see with a picture if his arm is actually black. It looks um, it white. Looks, it looks and the shoulder pad looks white. But that could be the company marking. Um, quite often, the uh, the a, the a chapter's armor will be one color. Okay. And the left, I'm trying to remember which way round it is now. So right shoulder pad would be um, their legion or chapter. Oh, okay. And then left shoulder com- left shoulder would denote either company or um, group they're attached with. So you would have your squad markings almost, or okay. your tactical marine markings, something like that. Well, I'm looking so at the that- chest plate though, and it looks white. He could be where I thought that was a tabard. Oh, it that's the be. cloak he's... Oh, maybe. It could be a cloak. So, I mean, the helmet looks black and the armor's very dark, so it could be a Ravenwing. Um, but you see, I mean, you see the other guy on the front cover, his right pauldron's uh, white as well. Right. So, but the armor's dark. Yeah, his so armor's dark, yeah. And he's got his, I mean, up. his is more green. But yeah, so, um, so I don't think it's that important, but it's a bit of interesting, it could be. Yeah. I mean... Uh, Anyone high up can have, you know, has a lot of filigree and things like that on their armor as well. So, could just be someone cool. <laughs> <laughs> could just be someone cool. Yeah, there we go. All right. So, um, initial thoughts. I'm I'm jumping right into this. I'm like excited to get going. You know, it's uh, yeah, no, that's good. It's that's another good. book that I didn't enjoy the first time I read it, um, and uh, the second time around. You, know, I think. The ones that I'm disappointed with are because I have different expectations than what I'm given. Yeah, sure. And now that my expectations were not to get a complete story, um, you know, and actually, in fact, you know, that to get only a small portion of it. Actually, this is, I mean, there's not a lot that goes on in this book. It's very, actually, there's, it covers, you know, it covers in great detail what is a rather short span of time. Yes. Um. And uh, you know, I'm not expecting the short story. It really does. The, the The breadth of the book, not too far. The depth of the book, lots of it. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I remember, I remember being one of the guys who liked it the first time round. Um, a lot of people don't like this book. We've, we've talked boy. about it being divisive. Um, on reading it the second time, I think a lot of what I liked about it was the secrets. Dark Angels have always been a secretive chapter um, and legion. And this book opens up a few doors and we start to see a few of those secrets being revealed. Um, I don't necessarily think it was quite as good as I remembered it first time, maybe because I know those secrets now and I knew roughly what was going to happen at any one point. I still um, have questions. There's stuff I still don't know what the heck was going on. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the difference. I, I say... I, Pre this book, we knew the Dark Angels um, in 40k. Their um, Caliban is is um, not a hundred percent complete as a planet anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, it's you know it's known as the Rock, and it basically is a bit of rock. Um, and we know that there are they they don't talk about their dark secret they had during the Heresy, and I mean 
there's stuff locked up down in their vaults and things like that, and it's never ever talked about. Um, I think the latest Dark Angels book expands on those a bit more. But this was where first we saw some of those little kind of glimpses to, to some of their secrets. Yeah. So now this is the first one that has a really long prelude to it. It was quite long, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was like a whole chapter practically. Um, and it comes in, it begins on Caliban. It's all in the nice little italicized font, so that way we can look. Ooh, it's like it's handwritten. So I'm reading this, and reading it the second time, I, like I said, I knew nothing about the Dark Angels when I started reading this book the first time. So the second time, little, you know, knew a little more, got a little more out of it. Um, but I like this... You know, this is the story of Caliban. It's the time of old light, old night. You know, we spent 5,000 years alone, developed our own culture. Um, and it's really interesting because the guy writing back has definitely got a strong point of view. Um, yes. You know, and he doesn't seem too happy that the Imperials have shown up. You know, he's shocked that the children of Caliban will know nothing of the culture that has developed over thousands of years. It's all gone. And he says, this is the way it is with conquerors. Oh yeah, he's you know? um, yeah, he's coming at it from a, a very specific viewpoint. I mean, even at the end, um, they will not know why we turned from the lion. So by the time you get to the end of it, you, you know this is this is not all going to work out well for all the uh, for all the dark angels. See, and that's part of what um, upset me is because I'm reading this. You know, you get this suffers from what I call big trouble in little China syndrome. And do you ever see big trouble in little China? Um, criminally, no. I've seen bits of it, but I not all of it. Homework. It's one of those films. Yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. I don't. There's so many films like that. It's like I've never seen Die Hard Two all the way through. Well, but I've seen, yeah. but I've seen all of it in <laughs> in parts at various times. <laughs> and I, I remember the overlapping bits. So I've seen the film, just never all in one go. Um, but you know, I need to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, it's beginning of Big Trouble in Little China. For anyone who's ever seen it. There's this lawyer, and he's asking this Asian guy, Egg Shen, questions about mm. what happened and all this stuff. And he talks, to, and he's talking to him, uh, you know, I need to know this. And he's like, you this, and you believe in magic. And he does all this stuff. And he, does little, he goes, that's how it begins, just a spark. And so he's supposed to be telling this story. And the end of the story, you know, this other character, the Jack Burton character, like, leaves. And you see him on a truck talking. And they never go back to... The guy telling, like, there's no wrap-up. Like, there's, it's a right, frame yeah. tale with only half a frame. And when you set this up and say, they're never going to know why we turned from the lion and all this, and then you'd never get there? Right. See, uh, dude, seriously, that's a, I'm, I'm, that is a, there, I got an issue with this. Just leaves you hanging. It really pissed me off. You know what this, I mean, it was like the second Matrix movie, when I didn't realize how closely it was linked to the third Matrix movie. Right. And, you know, you're doing all this. And, oh, and then look, and there's Neo laying next to the guy. Movie's over. Wait, what? That's the... What? Is it, no, that's not... I didn't watch... I, you, you know, I... I paid, yeah, I, I, I want a story. Yeah, I bought a ticket for the whole movie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you didn't warn me about this. And that really... It, it makes this book suffer. Yeah, I think. Uh, and that's my general opinion of it, is it suffers because... It's a cool tale, but it's amazingly incomplete tale, and you can have an I mean, incomplete tale and still leave the reader satisfied. And yeah, I don't think I this mean, did it. This whole book's almost a prelude. Exactly, it's just setting up the next book. But I, I, I and I understand that it's not 
yeah, it just, just doesn't quite do it. There's great stuff um, in this book. Don't get me wrong, but I didn't get what I pay. I, I didn't get the cost of admission here. In 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 that, you know, I I, I expected a story, and it, it it's it's frustrating when you don't get it. You know, Orson Scott Card leaves his book. The ends of his books, all of his books are left so open ended. If you read any yes. of those Ender's books, you know, even when he finishes the Shadow series. There's so much left open. When he finishes the Xenocide trilogy, there's so much. You're like you're never quite satisfied because you, there's always places. But he's leaving himself, he's leaving himself place where he could write and continue yeah. the story if he wants. But the story he told was still complete. There were loose ends, but I got a complete story. Here yes. I did. Here I didn't feel that way. There were loose ends, yeah, that's and that's it. So I don't know. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I think that colours a lot of people's overall opinion of the actual book, the writing of the book, and everything that goes on in that book as well. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. But I mean, I quite, I quite like the prelude generally. Um, oh, it's cool! It, I have so much about it here. You know, it tells you it's a death world. Yeah, they explained that. You know how how um, the society's descended in five thousand years. You know, without the support of the mechanical support, technical support, and everything, how they reverted to this feudal kind of knightly system in this death world with these, um, you know, great beasts everywhere and everything. Each monster is different. Let's talk about that a little bit because this is cool. Each monster is different. No two are alike. They're like monster snowflakes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> and. The customs of Caliban have come about due to the beasts, the tech of their ancestors. They've got the armor and weapons. They've got these huge fortress monasteries, the knightly orders that hunt the beasts. Um, th their culture has been dictated by the monsters, and I think that bears that bears you know saying because oh, yes, that's yes. not just figurative. I mean, it literally happens in here, but there's also I think. You know, there's 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 a definitely another layer of meaning to that. This culture, if this is a death world, and if it's tainted by chaos, if that's what's creating these monsters, then chaos yeah. has really shaped the entire culture of this this world. And that's that's the kind of kind of later on when we get to that realization that you know they they start to talk about the way the beasts are, and it's oh yeah, they're not of they're not normal beasts. I mean, even here when they're individual, you could come up with many reasons why there's individual beasts. But later on, when it kind of confirms that they're of the warp, it's yeah. like, ooh, Caliban. <laughs> and uh, I like the interesting stuff about the changes here. Before the Emperor, before the Lion. Before the, the Lion, order. yeah. Yeah. Then the and, order decided to take anybody in, and there's you got your nice political statement going on, you know. Yeah. Um, the order, the order started to change before the lion came in, and then we get to see the lion's kind of um, growth um, yeah. and taking over. And we haven't really seen that yet, so it was nice to have that in there. I like in this story though how the changes before the lion, and who, and you know that Luther had a lot to do with that change. It doesn't say it right here. But again, as we go through the book, yeah, yeah Luther's a, a pivotal yeah. player. They open it up to anybody. And this causes issues because the nobility doesn't like this. And just like any society that's a feudal society that's moving to allow its commoners, its peasantry to take roles that were reserved for nobility, there is strife. And when they allow this, they are attacked by the, or they're attacked by the Knights of the Crimson Chalice. 
and they're, they show up at the monastery of the order, and they start to set up a siege. And rather than let them set up their siege and get ready for war, while they're building all their stuff, the order just says, well, why are we sitting around? And yeah. they just charge out and attack them. They're like, screw this noise. We're not going to wait for you to set up a siege. And they just run out there and wipe them out while they're still setting up. <laughs> and I think that's great. Yeah, that's a, definitely a signal that <laughs> times have changed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the lion shows up. Um, and I love this. He learns to speak their language in days. He surpasses their greatest thinkers of in months. You know, he rises through the ranks. He goes for this. Uh, he wants uh, basically pushes for a systematic campaign of monster genocide. Jeez, who does that sound like? If they're not like us, they have to be gotten rid of. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the order is the biggest order, but the rest of the orders... You know, sort of, they all sort of come together and they just kind of felt that, you know, the order was like the first among equals. Yeah, absolutely. They were just another night, nightly order. But uh, at this point, some other orders thought this was the end, like the, really the end of the world. Like this, if you start a campaign to wipe out the monsters, you're not saving this planet. This, this is going to, you know, basically you're declaring all out war on the monsters. We're no longer playing a defensive game. If you go on the attack, the, uh, you know, the end of the world's going to happen. Um, and it's great. Johnson got his way. Uh, the only thing he was wrong about was how much time it would take. He said six years, and it was more like ten. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, and then there's Luther, the closest thing the lion has to an equal. Um, and then they got this weird part. The Imperium portrays Luther as a devil, jealous of the lion, hateful of the lion, uh, but the Nader says that Luther just adores him, and nobody will know. Yeah, like he said nobody will know why they fell, but we'll get the story. Um, it's a classic intro. This is, I mean, every. I mean, yeah. I could, I could go, to, I could go to my school right now and pull out a dozen books that get taught to students throughout the the years that have one of these intros. Yeah, it's you, hitting every note. It's turning on. Yeah. You know, setting up every beat. Basically, you think you know the truth. You only know the fiction. You know, the story, which is an interesting thing as they lay out this story, because throughout the book, in fact, you just even read a part from it. Nobody's going to care about this war and nobody's going to know why we fought it. And anyone who knows, thinks they know why we fought it is only going to get the historical view, which is going to be revisionist at best. Yes. And that theme comes up just the, the whole. I like the I like the prelude because it sets up not just this, you know, this 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 idea but the whole theme of the book is here. You don't. Nobody knows the truth. Truth is hidden. Um, you know what? What you know, you think you know what's going on, but you don't. Um, the, the whole book. I mean, even in their their monasteries, everything's on a mountain. Everything's in a spiral. Everything spirals. You know, through yeah. it's just circles and spirals and secrets and nonsense and. You know, you know. In hindsight, you look at it and go, "How did you not know something was going to go horribly <laughs> wrong?" You know, <laughs> absolutely. It it doesn't take much for some something to break that kind of system. Yeah. So, um, but it's yeah. I say it's it's good, and we, we've got you know we've already seen we see here that Luther and and the Lion, um, you know, are, are cast in very different lights. Um, but we see that Luther was achieved. If we can believe this statement at the front, 
that Luther was exceptional um, uh, amongst humanity. Luther was something else. Right. Um, and that kind of gives the weight to, to what you see happening through the book. You know, exactly. you've never, never got to forget that Luther, Luther is above way above the average and way above the best kind of thing. He yeah. is, it's said more yeah. than once that he would be the, one of the greatest pe- persons in all of Caliban history. In yes. fact, had the lion not shown up, he would have gone down as, as Caliban's greatest leader ever. But then a Primarch shows up and, well, no chance. you're out of luck. <laughs> so, Indeed. All right, so part one, Caliban. Let's jump into chapter one. Groovy. All right. So chapter one. <laughs> uh, we are introduced to Zahariel Elzurius. Um, he is, <laughs> it's a nice start. He is dragged from his bed, hooded, and brought before the Lord Cypher's men. Um, uh, he's being tested, and it really seems life or death here. Like I mean, yeah, and they make it out to be a uh, yeah more of a um a, a sentencing kind of thing rather than yeah. This, <laughs> I mean, this doesn't seem good, and it cuts back and forth between this trial and what happened before. There's a lot of jumping around. Uh, let's not jump around. Let's kind of go through this a little more easily. Yeah. Before this, he meets with Master Ramiel, and he finds out he's going to be initiated, but they don't tell him anything else. Uh, there's a discussions of tradition, how human beings crave ritual, and it gives meaning to their lives. And then it starts explaining some of their beliefs. Um, he starts walking a spiral, and um, the spiral is the foundation of their lives, or their or their sword work. Uh, it's part of their physical doctrines. As they they keep walking around, offering up one side as a defense, and and that. Um, it's, a spiral seems like a weird, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, um, fighting style to use as a spiral. Yeah, yeah, I can't quite picture how how that quite works. Exactly. But it's, um, but um, then I'm not a swordsman, so. <laughs> and then they, <laughs> then they've got the. Uh, the the verbatim, which is the cornerstone of their mental disciplines, it's sort of like their their sutras. It's their you know all the all the all of their teachings. Yes, um, yeah, it's, it's quite good. I mean, they they try to make it clear. Ramiel tries to make it clear to Zaria that these are super, these are um, you know uh, ceremony, and this is all kind of what's expected to do. And, and <clears throat> excuse me, it's yeah, it's mainly. Tradition and ceremony, right? But it quite it just echoes um, religiosity. It's oh, <laughs> they're sure. doing these things is so much kind of you're like that's a fine line. You keep telling yourself that yeah, it's just tradition. It's just tradition. Yeah, I mean, it <laughs> says here how he was walking the spiral since his first day. Patterns repeating until the movements are second nature. You know, you will master an unbeatable system of self-defense. It's not just attack and defense. It's repetition. It's life and history repeating. It's the snake swallowing its own tail. You know, it's just like it's reincarnation. As he goes through the spiral and gets back to where he started, the old Zahariel dies and the new one is born. You know, all of this is going on and they're really pushing this concept. It just seems so... Weird. I mean, and it's like, and I mean, anybody who knows me knows I'm a big fat behemoth. I'm like a big 350 pound blob of monster. 
Um, but I didn't always used to be big and fat. And I used to live with a roommate who was like a martial artist and and, and really into that stuff. And I've, I've you know I've I've studied some martial arts with him and I've learned a little bit. And the spiral is just not common. It's not something you see. Um, no. It just it seems like such a bizarre sort of formation, and it really, you know, like it's what sets us apart. It sure does, you know. Um, and, and like I said, this 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 whole theme, this idea, just comes through over and over and over again throughout uh, throughout the book. Um, but let's jump over to this initiation. So he gets into this initiation where he's blindfolded and tied up, and he's got a knife at his throat. And he's being interrogated about everything. Uh, they're asking him questions. One guy's asking him questions. One, there's three people there questioning him. One guy's asking him questions. One guy seems to be nice. The other guy is tearing apart everything he says and twisting it and making it sound bad and trying to make him sound horrible. Um, but despite that, he's unflustered. He passes his tests. He does what he needs to do. Um yeah. And then they cut away the blindfold, and there's Lord Cipher, Luther, and the lion, who is exactly who he expected. He knew the voices. He knew what was going on. Uh, he takes a blood oath. And then it's interesting. There is no more talk of lineage. He's no longer... Um, you know, He won't mention his family. He no, no longer has a family. He's something new. His new yeah, family that, is with the Order. Yeah, he's died, and, and the news area was... The or the knight of Zario is is now in his place. It's right. cut all the all the, the strands. I mean, you know, the book's full of um, uh, links and, and and echoes of of how space marines do things and whatever. And you know, all these trials and stuff. You look for that. I say it all echoes the way space marines do things. And again, a lot of space marines can't remember their, their human human past or remember it fuzzily things like that so you know you're, they're cut off is that from that side the, is well. that part of their conditioning i was wondering because they mention it many times this book one of the things <laughs> i liked about this book was interesting to see a human who gets the gene seed from their point of view the yes. amount of changes um it's because uh, it mentions many times how he would forget most of his yeah it's past. um i I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think if it's mentioned, if it's any part of it. I don't think it's specifically mentioned where it is. But some some space marines can't remember anything of their human life. Some can remember certain bits quite vividly. And you'll read a lot of stories where space marines have vague memories of, oh, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, a woman, you know, I used to know and things like that. So you get a lot of vague memories. Some are very explicit, um, but it seems to be fairly random. Um, usually to suit a story, I would think, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's diff- different for every space marine, as far as I can tell. Reading reading through books. All right. Um, so like a, once again, we've got um, uh, you know, he's been in and around the order for a while, but when his hood's taken off and he sees sees the lion there, he's that's it. He loses track of his yeah. thought. Yeah, he's. <laughs> He's a, as Luther says, you're in danger of your jaw dropping off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love how Luther makes jokes and Cypher won't have any of it. Like, he gets really annoyed that Luther's making any sort of jokes. Yeah, he seems like, a bit of a hard ass, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, the lion says they have other matters, and Cypher said there's nothing more important than initiation, and he still hasn't taken his vows. So he's on the edge. He's not in yet. No making jokes yet. 
he hasn't actually yeah. said the vows. He hasn't agreed to it. And so then uh, uh, put your hand on the knife and swear to the most bloody and binding undertaking. The blade has already taken your blood. It has cut your palm. Let the knife be the guardian of your oaths. If by any future deed you prove that the words you have spoken here are lies, let the blade that has cut your palm return to slash your throat. Swear to it. And uh, he swears to it. And then your old life is dead. You're no longer the boy named Zahariel el Zurias, the son of Zurias el Khalil. From this day forth, there will be no more talk of lineages and the antecedents of your fathers. You are neither nobleman nor commoner. You are a knight of the order. Um, and then... You know he's he's a part of it. There, you've got your uh, yeah. That's that's the, the the full setup now. Yeah, almost. Yeah, you're there. I did like the um, when when he saw the lion and he was transfixed, and it even mentions that he forgot that Luther was even there talking to him. And it's yeah. like, here we go. We're going to put it in there again. Poor old Luther. <laughs> <laughs> Just forgotten about well, now, the lions. Here, here. Now here's part of it though, and one of these things and. One of the things I didn't realize when I read it the first time, because I'm reading it the first time, and, and I don't, I didn't know who the good guys or the bad guys were in this. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, you know, the first time I'm reading it, Zahariel is saying how Nemiel's jealous of him, and Nemiel's all these things, and just doesn't, you know, he gets upset all the time. And the second time I'm reading it, I'm like, wait a minute. He's like, he says it, and then he laughs, but I could tell he was upset. And I'm like, well, was he really upset, or is that just how you're taking it? You know what I'm saying? We're, we're well, getting yeah, everything absolutely. through this filter. And so the first time I read it, I was like, oh, look, Sahariel, he's the one who's a lot negative all the time. He's the one who's going to go bad. You know, he's going to do this. He's going to do that. And it's like, so now I'm kind of taking that with a step back. So every time he mentions what he notices, you got to question it. And then, of course, later in the book, he becomes really adept at sort of reading faces because he's, you know, he's, he's a bit, I mean, everybody's read this already. You know, he's a bit touched. He's a, he's a psyker. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, maybe he does know what he's talking about. I can never really keep track of. And it's part of the beauty of the Dark Angels. Yeah. And I say for, um, you know, um, original heresy fluff, um, you don't know exactly what's happened with the Dark Angels. Um, you don't know um, how loyal or disloyal they were at any one point. Um, and that's always been their kind of shtick all these questions to be asked and and who does what and who did what so they're just playing on that again yeah and then yeah and that the whole their whole thing now they just constantly avoid they not only they avoid giving any answers to any questions you know <laughs> then they do they avoid all of that stuff because they they're hiding this secret and they don't want to give anything away and um so let's jump into chapter 2 real quick um, I like the beginning of chapter two about this little cut on his hand, and it says that his his wound on his hand heals quickly, but he always like for the rest of his life seems to feel it. Uh, yeah, it's, like uh, it's it's more substantial than just a regular cut. Yeah, and he actually calls it a vague and insubstantial sensation, some part of his mind reminding him of his oaths. He actually called it his conscience, and he feels it for the rest of his life. And I love how they put it here in time. He almost becomes used to it. Almost. Yeah, in time he would almost become used to it. So it's weird that uh, he gets this little cut. I mean, it's a symbolic, you know, opening, of, you know, shedding of blood, making your oath. But it always gave a twinge and a tinge to him. And con- he constantly could feel it. And I'm just wondering if this has anything to do, even if it goes back to that oath. Now, I know the oath was, 
you know, if you l- lied on this, you know, may the same blade come back and cut your throat. But, you know, is that tingling that he always feels, you know, he's, you know he says it's a reminder of him to keep him on the straight and narrow path, but it also could be completely, it could be the alarm going off because he's not, not the reminder of, hey, you should stay on the path. I, sure, I don't yeah. know. It could be. Yeah. Um, thrown in there. It's, um, it was thrown a, in there with nothing to back it up, nothing to support it in any way. It's a, another kind of piece of information that's thrown out into the ether. You've got to try and work out your truth. Right. <laughs> what yeah, and that he's, is. Yeah, and, he's, and he feels it for the rest of his life. Yeah. So it's not just something he's thinking about now. Something weird is happening there. And he, either he's just odd or there's yeah. something else. And we don't know, but it's like, okay. Yeah. It, so, might, be a, it might be the first kind of example of his latent psychic ability um kind of imp- impressing that upon himself but i say we've got nothing to go on there right at all at but the I moment just, so. yeah I yeah just no it's, it's like that they dropped that in there it was like a, a, a bizarre introduction so now we're introduced introduced a little bit more to zahariel and his and his cousin nimiel um they are distant. i'm so glad they weren't brothers no it they was were, oh, reading back through it again. It's like, oh, if they'd been brothers, it would have been awful. Oh, it, it would have just been one too many cliches, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, but actually, were, allowing them to be cousins allows you to do almost everything you want to do with a brother, right? Without having that, oh, he's his brother, and one's a good guy, and one's going to be a bad guy, and all that. It stops all of that kind of from happening. It gives you a bit of a barrier, which is quite good. But it's interesting because they're both distant. They're they're very distant cousins, but both from the same line of nobility. Yes. So these guys actually, they're they're distant blood to the nobility, but they could actually claim outside of the order, not just as a normal. Yes. You know, commoner, yeah, they but they claim could, land and everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, they could be mistaken for brothers. Um, yeah. In fact. Uh, they shared the characteristically lean faces and aquiline profile of their ancestors, but the bond they shared went far deeper than any accidental similarity of their features. Um, and it was, it was like a bond. It was almost like the weird, I mean, you know, they could have even gone farther because they look alike, but they're cousins. I mean, they could have made them twins. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, but so, but thankfully, oh, they didn't. No. That's good. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder if... I wonder if it was thought up. I wonder. I'd like to have. I'd like to hope that um, Mitchell Scanlon started with that, and that wasn't an editorial change. I just just yeah. start to think about well, that. I but mean, yeah, no, it's yeah, good. You, it works. You can't start with twins anyway because then that goes over to the uh, Alpha Legion and stuff like that. So we just avoid. Anyway, that moving on. Um, yeah. All, so, so yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, um, but you, it, say, it provides that they, it provides that link without being brothers. Um, it provides the reflecting reflection of the line and the Luther's relationship as we go through the whole book. Yeah, um, and, and it is and, interesting how they push each other. Yes, yes, um, and we, as we say, we see Luther and the Lion doing that, and, and there's a kind of a little bit of you know gamesmanship between the two of them. Um, the and book is so things. full of parallels to it is absolutely, and we'll probably be talking about it all the way through. Well, it's um, almost it's almost overdone at a point because when you get yes, to the final end I of agree. the book, I was like, "Wait a minute, are you serious? Yeah. This is what I still don't know exactly what they were fighting." But you know, you might as well call Sarashi, you know, the Sarashi people. Oh, it's the mini Caliban. I'm like, okay, 
Yeah, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot. Yeah, it probably is overdone. I think that's one thing I I pulled up. Um, you didn't notice actually that with uh, Nemiel looking up at his brother, it was almost like it's like we've been talking about Fulgrim and kind of little hints of can't be seen to be outdone. And that's I think that's right. just that's just unintentional. That's happened in there, but it was because we'd just recorded Fulgrim when I read this. Right. Um, as I say, we're seeing a lot of that kind of. You can almost see Fulgrim's weaknesses here. Well, and it's funny because that once again, you're getting it all from Zahariel's point of view, and Nimiel's. I mean, he keeps. Yes, now granted, Zahariel does stuff, but I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about this later because when they become full fledged knights and they both do it. You know, you keep hearing how Zahariel always seems to win. And at the times it almost doesn't even seem like that's exactly accurate either. But we'll we'll get to that because I just liked how this thing, um, how the, the masters encouraged their competition. You know, that separately that they were average, but this dr- dr- being driven by this mutual rivalry, they become impressive. Neither yeah. one is going to let the other one beat him. You know, they've had this friendly rivalry their whole lives whenever they play anything. And so they just push harder and faster and longer than anybody else because they're always have. It's not just the, you know, it's not just the best to get by. They've got to be better than the other one. Yeah. That's their benchmark. Yeah. Uh, Nemiel was the, the, he's the one who was a few weeks older, too. Uh, and according to the story, the competition was harder on him because Zahariel most, like, mostly wins. Yes. Um, and if he did lose at some game or something, he went back and did it again better than before. So however he was beat, he went back and made sure he could do better and not lose that way again. Uh, and he and he credits his cousin for that push. And it says that actually that he applauds his cousin's victories as loudly as his own. Um, but then it says that deep down, how Nemiel wished he wasn't so successful. And I got this right here. Um, for Nemiel, however, it was different. In time, despairing of ever outdistancing his brother, he began to harbor secret reservations about Zahariel's achievements. Despite his best efforts to control his thoughts, Nemiel found there was a small voice within him that wished Zahariel would not be too successful. Not that he ever wished harm or failure on his brother, but simply that Zahariel's triumphs would always be more limited in magnitude than his own. Perhaps it was childish, but the competition between them had defined their lives for so long that Nimiel found it difficult to outgrow it. In many ways, his relationship with Zahariel would always be as much about rivalry as it was about brotherhood. It was the nature of their lives. In times to come, it would decide their fate. So we get the... You get another little foreshadowing that something's going to happen between them. Um, it's another weird thing that you've got. Like I said, you got your parallel between Luther and the lion, and then you got a parallel between Nemiel and Zahariel. Although Nemiel seems to be the one who comes in second place, but he also seems to be the one who. I mean, you would see from the two of these, it would seem that Nemiel was in the Luther spot. Oh, absolutely, yes, definitely. But, but in the end, he winds up at. The lion's side, and Zahariel winds up at Luther's side, which seems backwards to the way it initially seems like it's going to go. Yeah, um, I don't get too much into it because I don't quite understand it. Well, it's uh, not it's not fully explained. I don't think. Well, no, it? it's not at the end of the day. Off. Um, get to see them fighting and right, they're sparring for dude. Fifteen minutes of sparring with a weapon—that's long. Right, that's really 
really let's, long. Let's go a step further. 15 minutes of sparring with a weapon as a nine-year-old. That's Oh, then that's right. Let's talk about that. Dude, they're yeah. tiny. I, they're little <laughs> kids. I didn't realize this. I forgot how young they were. And you go back to um, you know, when they're outside the gates and everything. Um, maybe a year on Caliban is longer than a year on Terra. <laughs> we we have to that might be an example but um you know they were inducted at seven you know been training um as they go through in armor with weapons so these armor and weapons would have to be made for nine-year-olds to to wield and the great varying size of nine-year-olds so they might be having armor that doesn't fit and things like that on them as well which is only going to make life harder for them um and big pistols and things like that and the mental testing that goes with it um it, I mean, now life on the, Caliban is rough because I keep trying rough. to picture my—I yeah. keep trying to picture my eight-year-old. Yeah, yeah, and not granted, it's a she, you know Kira. She's a girl, you know. But I'm just trying to picture even my oldest how silly and 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 just fun-loving and you know. Just, I mean, I, th- I think you've got to look at things like you know um, Game of Thrones shows like kids in a medieval style. Yeah, I and, mean, they're not how, little yeah. kids. There are no little kids. You grow up quick, and I get exactly. that. And but that, yeah. still. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Okay, you don't have a childhood, and you do go off to train in the sword at seven or whatever. But to do what these kids are doing at that age, it's just like... kids at the age of seven or eight or nine or whatever walk up a mountain <laughs> in the winter. Now, dude, yeah. I'm sorry. They have to lose their boots... And their jackets and stand outside in the snow without moving for like 24 hours. Yeah, without I, food. I couldn't do that. Freezing. No. And I'm not talking about being f- afraid. I'm not talking about. Dude, first of all, I don't get this. I see it in movies all the time. People wandering around in the snow without anything on. Yeah, it's just. Dude, uh, I, you get frostbite. You, I mean, I am. Um, maybe some Canadians. Maybe I'm a cream puff. It, but, you know. Maybe. But my point is, seriously. Standing out in the snow without it's a jacket. I mean, I can go out without a jacket. I got a lot of natural insulation. But I ain't going out there without shoes. Exactly. To stand in the snow for 24 hours. The stuff these guys do is ridiculous. You, you might get, you know, on a planet like that, you might get a handful of kids that could do it. Well, they said like, a dozen out of like 200 like made it through the initial that's, process. That's every time that they go and stand outside the gates, though. And that's every order. We'll have a different initiation. But, yeah, you're still looking at about 5% of the kids can do it. But yeah. I, I tell you, if, if, I could find, a lot. if I could find five nine-year-olds out of 200 oh. who I can send out to go stand in the snow. It'd be amazing. And maybe it's not that cold because, honestly, you can have snow without the cold. I've seen people, you know, you're going skiing and yeah. stuff, and the weather is, is right for snow. But, but it's sunny out there and, you're, and that – and it's standing, not so bad. But. Snow's still cold when it's on the floor, though. And when you're standing <laughs> in it barefoot. But yeah, I mean, I was I was reading this at the same time I was listening to Ender's Shadow. Oh yeah. And, and you look at Bean and Ashiel in that, and Ashiel's brilliant, a young kid, and Bean's amazing. I was like, oh, this is like Bean, but Bean's explained in a very specific way in that book that is not anything like this. No. And it just it just struck me at that point. I was like, it's just pushing it a bit too far. I know I didn't realize at, they were that young until the you, second you look, time I was yeah. reading it. I mean, if you look at it's it's done a lot in space marines in general because they start young 
when they're trained. So you have to, you know, like yeah. 80, 80% of what they put up with, maybe. But I just think they went about 15, 20% too over the top. Yeah, I mean, you look even you know, look at Star Wars. The Jedi they start training those kids at like you know the age of two or three, or it seems like you know what I'm saying. If yeah. if you're, yeah, but that's mental know. training. That's not all right. the physical exertions. It's not quite this the same. Crazy, is it? Now, exactly. You know, I mean, maybe like you said, life is rough for them. You know, yeah. it's a sort of a frontier life. Yeah. Maybe we can't they, judge it on our Western. <laughs> and you figure, and I mean, there's a good chance. I mean, I'll, I won't joke around. I know I used to go around, and I used to like to go out without shoes a lot. And I just like didn't wear shoes a lot. Like, I just didn't like to as a kid. And by the time I became an adult, I have like I had like leathery thick bottoms on my feet because I was always. Yeah. And so I could see. Yeah, I suppose if that's your life for eight years, and they're thick and calloused, yeah, maybe you could stand in the snow. But these aren't these aren't the poor people though. Nemo well, and Zario, yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're from a lineage, so they probably wouldn't. Well, they just did, nice but, but they also didn't give up because they were both yeah. there. Absolutely. Whereas but, yes, some of these I'd other say, kids gave up. And it's, I just I think just, yeah. 15, 20% too much. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> if, just if, tone, it, tone it down a bit. If you told me that I could pick, what is it? They said about 10 out of over 200. If you gave me 100 kids and you could, at, at nine years old, be I'd amazed be amazed if, if five of them oh, could do yeah. what these guys did. I'd be amazed. And this happened. I mean, that seems to be the percentage, the normal of what um, goes on here. It's just, dude, it, it's insane. So, they, okay, so they spar for 15 minutes, which, like I said, I'm, uh, I am so out of shape. I've been actually going back to the health club, trying to get back in shape so that I can live long enough to see my children graduate college. And, um, dude, 15 minutes of full-on exercise for me is killing me. Now, granted, I'm carrying around a whole other person worth of weight, and they're young and they're not. But, no, I got friends, like I said, who are into the martial arts and into things like this. Solid fifteen minutes of fighting is long. There's a reason boxing matches are only three minutes around, yeah, and those guys are sitting down sweating like crazy. And that's not that's not as exerting as wearing armor and having sword fighting. Yeah, it's it's, just, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. So after fifteen, <laughs> but, so we minutes, have to yeah. accept that as we read the book. I think. So let's see. It's been two years since our initiation. So yeah. So the um. So. Let's see. Uh, they threaten to call it a tie. Zahario finishes it with a lunge. And, you know, boom, he gets in there with a head, head punch. Uh, Nemiel's irritated at the loss, but he's not, you know, all out of sorts. But they discuss the whole thing, you know. Um, yeah, they're also pretty with it for nine-year-olds as well. Yeah. The terminology they're using and things like that. Yeah, I just, God, they, I mean, yeah, they... They don't. Yeah, it's odd how young they are. Maybe that's part of the planet too. Maybe that's this weird whatever. I, say, I mean, if they've got a year and a half um, kind of cycle of going around their sun, then seven could be you know twelve quite easily. I suppose. So it but, does does start to change things a little bit. But I guess. But yeah. But so yeah, then no. they start discussing this whole idea of may you live in interesting times and how it used to be considered a curse. But in Caliban, it's almost a blessing because Caliban itself is so freaking horrifying at all times that if it was just interesting and not threatening, this is a good idea. Uh, all right. So all this is going on, and you find out that Brother Amadis is returning. Um, oh, he's a dude. Oh, he's awesome. Uh, they all are heading off to the Circle Chamber in Alduruk. Is that it? Alduruk? Is that the name of their temple or That's, their monastery? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, Circle right. Chamber, Alduruk. 
Oh, so he's known as the hero of Maponis, the slayer of the great beast of Kulkos, defeater of the blood knights of Endriago Vaults. Um, you know, <laughs> who nearly fought the vicious chicken of Bristol. But um, yes. but he, they said he would have been the Grand Master had Johnson not shown up. Uh, and it's funny because they're all getting there waiting for him. And Brother Amadis is like Zaharial's hero. You know, yeah, it's he's, like this, he's a lot of them's hero. Yeah. So, you know, they've got this idea of him. And he's disappointed that he's just a man, like normal size <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yeah. And I the love legends this. have gone before him. Well, and you know what? But Johnson, I think part of it has to do with with the lion. That when you're yeah, picturing yeah, a legendary, yeah. this You've guy got has, one there. Yeah, this guy has done all this, and he shows up, and he he's not he doesn't quite stack up to their vision of what he you know because the lion has pretty much. I mean, what, and what does he stand like? He stands like eight and a half feet tall, doesn't he? Or no, 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 no. When they describe it, most of the Marines are ten. He's about ten feet tall. They said he's just over yeah. three meters. Yeah. yeah. So here's a guy who's standing three to four feet over the tallest guys in the group. You know, and this is the guy you look to as wow. He's the he's the epitome of it. So when he finally meets this guy, there's a minute of like, whoa, he's just a man. Yeah, and then now that grows even more kind of awe. He's just a man, right. <laughs> and he's done all that. But the, he shows up there, and I love the description here. It's the bottom of page 50 in my book when he comes in. He says, you might hear tales of me. Some of them are even true. And then he starts <laughs> talking about this. This is a great little speech because it's not, it's not your normal speech. Uh, most of them no, are a proper down-to-earth, yeah. proper. Yeah, what's us see here. Uh, the point is when a man hears the same thing said of him often enough, he begins to believe them. Tell a child often enough it's worthless and beneath contempt, it'll start to believe that such a vile sentiment is true. Tell a man he's a hero, a giant amongst men, and he'll start to believe that too, thinking himself above all others. If enough praise and honor is heaped upon a man, he'll start to believe that such is his due and that all others must bow to his will. Seeing you all here is a grand reminder that I am not such a man. I was once a would-be novice, standing out in the cold night before the gates of this monastery. I, too, walked the spiral under the rods of instructor knights, and I, too, undertook a beast quest to prove my mettle to the order. You are where I was, and I am where any one of you can be. That's a great speech. It is. It is. And if you stop at the end of, um, if enough praise and honor is heaped upon a man, he will start to believe that such is his due and that all others must bow is to his will. Horace, <clears throat> Horace. Jeez, almost any of the Primarchs, though. Yeah, but though, you know, it's really yeah. calling out. But yeah, and it just shows how easy it is. Uh, yeah, emperor, yeah. the Emperor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I'm even a, though, you know, and I'm not saying the Emperor is, is looking for praise. He, In fact, whenever he shows up, he tells people to stop doing that. But you know what I'm saying, too, at the same yeah. point, he won't be denied. <laughs> this, uh, um, Amadis is just so on the, on the ground, down to earth. Yeah. And he's just like, no, I just hard, I worked hard. I did my things. Yeah. Any of you can do this. So, um, and the, the strength of this non-speech makes Zaharial pledge to be the greatest knight the orders have ever seen. Um, this, you know, pledges and oaths are so important to this group. Uh, and they're yes. important throughout this, I mean, to the Space Marines. I mean, they make the oath of moment. There's all sorts of pledges that happen. And woe betide the person who breaks his oath. 
Yes. You know, and I mean, a space marine who makes an oath of moment and goes into a mission and fails the mission, we've seen how badly that affects them. Okay. Failure to fulfill an oath is huge in all of these cultures. And I think it shows uh, not just his youth and his, you know, sort of folly, but I'm wondering if to make an oath like this could kind of come back to bite him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, it would be too Broken much. Oath, yeah, because yeah. he makes an oath to be the greatest knight that the Order has ever seen. You yeah. you can't do that. No. You know, was he just no. caught up in the moment? Or because to make an oath is something, you know, he was caught up in the moment later when he makes an oath to go on a quest. Yes. You know, and then. And that got him in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> he's screwed, right. Yeah. Um, and this, this oath is much greater. And, and it's and impossible. If he, if he's, yeah, and if he starts to see it. Lose, losing track. Where do you go? What lengths do you go to to, to maintain your oath? And yeah, because and have, let's have, face it, the, the Luther and the Lion are standing there. I mean, brother Amadeus aside, Luther and the Lion are standing <laughs> there. You know, yeah. I will be the greatest guy ever in this lodge. Oof. I mean, and I don't know how formal of an oath that was. I'm just no, saying. Again, we might, we're looking at a nine-year-old. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah. you know, you look there, someday I'm going to be a big sports star. You know, I mean, kids yeah. make oaths like oh, that. Oh, we did it. Yeah. I'm going to be just, someday I'll be a Jedi, you know, <laughs> really, you know. Yes. Um, but it just still, it struck me as, ooh, okay. That, and it was the second time around reading it that that struck me. Uh, he realizes it's a huge vow, though. He does do that, and so he supplements it. Where is it? Right here at the end of it. Um I'm looking for it. Vowed there and then he would be the greatest knight the Order had ever seen and the most heroic warrior ever to sally forth from the great memorial gate to do battles with the enemies of Caliban. Well, maybe he was, too. I mean, if he be- I don't know. I don't know who he becomes because, honestly, I don't know that, that much. Um, but who knows? Maybe he's the greatest of his half. And maybe he sees the enemies of Caliban as whoever, whichever half went against him because yes, he's one who's maybe. stuck in the book. So maybe that does, maybe this <laughs> oath does, you know, work in some fashion. Uh, despite the pride and hubris inherent in such a vow, he made a silent oath that he would never lose sight of what it meant to be a knight. The humility that must accompany all great deeds and the unspoken satisfaction in knowing that doing the right thing was reason enough to do it. This is very important because throughout the whole book, he's constantly being chided at being naive and just being yep. bound to duty. And if that's my job, I got to do it. I'm only following orders. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, you know, Forrest Gump can get away with that. You do what you're told to do and you always wind up ahead, but not everybody else no, absolutely. can get away with it. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, it also reminds you of a lot of other stories, this idea that, you know, he swears, not only will I be the greatest, but I'll never lose sight of all those important things. How many stories have we heard where the where the yeah. tyrant? I mean, look look at Darth Vader. Yes. I always fall back on Darth Vader. He's such a great example. I just want to make sure everybody's free. I want to free my mother. I want to free the slaves. I want to make sure that everyone, you know, gets something. Yeah, it's quite good. I think it's quite good to to pull back on that because um, uh, Lucas was a massive fan of Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Th- Faces, right? Um, which describes the archetypes of heroes and all that, and he he basically buys those archetypes. He doesn't really, you look at all his characters, they're fairly archetypical. Oh yeah. Um, and, and, and we're, we're seeing that with this book a bit where with, um, with star Wars, the nature of star Wars makes it work brilliantly 
I mean, right. Luke's character, you know, it's really not deep, is it? At the end of the day, I'm going to be the best Imperial pilot ever. Wait, oh, no, they're bad. I'm going to kill them. That's basically it. You yep. know, they killed my aunt and uncle. But in, in a book like this, I think it needs a bit more... It, the, after so many of those obvious links, right. you're, you're starting to look for something a little bit different. But I, I kind of like this, and I, like I said, I'm, I'm, it's, it's not until you read it a second time, and I got it in my notes, and it's sort of laid out that I'm seeing, oh, it would be interesting to see if this is something. You know, I, I, I picture other things, and once again, uh, you know, like, okay, and I know this isn't science fiction, but Citizen Kane, I don't know if you've ever seen Citizen Kane. It's on my list. Uh, <laughs> I've seen bits of it. <laughs> uh, when he takes over, he he does this pledge, and he handwrites this pledge to be the defender yeah. of the common man, and my newspaper's yeah. going to do the truth, and I, 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 and they go... And his friend who does it with him says, can I keep that piece of paper when you're done printing it? And he goes, why? He goes, I think that's going to be important someday. And later yeah. on when he becomes this huge mogul and he's, and he's become a yellow journalist and he's become sort of this not really corrupt but really lost sight of what his goals were to be yes. – his friend sends it to him, and he gets it, and he sees it, and it's just that reminder of – He's always was, become. Yeah. yeah, and I just I, – I, I'm, I'm wondering if if we ever get – I mean, because this is book six. What book are they on in the series now? Thirties uh, just come out. Oh, Christ. I'm only on 18. All right. So they're on six. The next book that covers this is what it what when was after what was uh the next uh, Fallen Angels is number I shall was look it nine hard that book or was it eleven no no it's eleven eleven okay and so we've had nineteen books since then and this damn story still hasn't been finished spoilers folks book eleven doesn't finish this either no yeah, I, yeah I mean, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be frank I'm a little pissed off it's a bit it's a bit. It's not great. I realize um, that. I mean, I realize that this this is one of the couple of bo- these this pair of books got a lot of grief. We do so maybe start not that popular, but no, you, you do start to get other. Um, it is dealt with in part in an audio. Um, there, well, there's there's hints to and yeah, and yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. hints and of. whispers and rumors. Give me a and, book, and there's a and then there is a book where uh, the line appears in it. Um, so you do. Oh, I get read a the bit one short story, overview. but I'm still not getting. I want this story. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, absolutely. I want to know yeah, what happens with these it's, people, and if and I'm, if you know if the planet sure blows up at the end, I want it. I'm sure it's something they've got on their uh, radar. All right, I'm sorry. That my I'm going to keep saying this. I can't help it. It's it, and you know this is the first book that I'm really and it is and it is a problem with a book. But and in fact, actually thinking about it, I mean, one other thing that I should have mentioned right at the top is this is the first book that's not set in the heresy. Um, and it really oh, breaks – and people reading for this for the first time, it really breaks. You know, we had the first four books went in order, pretty much. Um, yeah, you had three books. And, you had a slight backtrack and overlap in four. Four and five was overlap and then carried on and a little bit. And carried on the story, yeah. And this just starts, boom, cut however many hundred years, you know, 160 years in, in, in the past. Yeah. And it was like, it was a bit of a shock to the system when you're reading, oh, heresy book. Boom, it's not set in the heresy. Ooh, okay. And I don't I think that hurt the book. I think if this book if this book had been later on when um other books had broken that pseudo timeline. This is a weird story. A yeah. Yeah. You're breaking the mold 
and you're giving me an incomplete story. I think you're right. I think you're hitting it, it on the head. There's there. a lot of things. There's a lot of little things that hurt this book um, yeah. outside of the writing before you even get into the writing or, or whatever and whatever your views on that. Well, speaking uh, of which, let's jump into chapter three. What say you? Yes. All right. Yeah, chapter three. Two more chapters, then we'll hit the end of book one. We'll take a break. Cool. All right, so Zahariel's having a nightmare about when he went uh, to the order to be accepted as an... Apparently he has a nightmare about this a lot. And this, yeah, that's where the... Never a good song. There's seven. So, yeah, (laughs) that's right, because I have it written in my notes. They were freaking seven. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. So there's seven. It's midwinter, and it's the only time they recruit. And that's just cruel. I mean, I know you want them to be tough, but there's a there's a cruelty about this yeah. acceptance yeah. Again, plan. Yeah, it looks it looks nice from the outside. It's got a nice little nightly order, but <laughs> under, underneath that, in every step underneath it, there's something going on. I mean, they're hazing seven year olds. That's what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's even just, you Americans don't do that, do you? No, and we do. We're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> We, we like our bloodshed, but we like to keep, you know, we like to make sure that they've hit puberty first. Oh, this is horrible. Let's see. So the test is sustained at one spot all night. No food, no drink, no rest, no shoes, no coats. There's a forest several hundred meters behind them. The guards yell Yelling at them. Abuse, yeah. you know, this reminds me of Fight Club. Your father smells it. It reminds me of Monty Python. <laughs> well, they, but that's just the taunting, yeah. you yeah, know. No, but here they come right out. And, yeah. I mean, they actually tricked the one kid. Hey. You're in. Dude, yeah. you're totally in. He's like, really? Thank God. And he's like, ha ha, lied. You failed. Trick you. It's like, yeah, you know. It's like meat life trying to get in the house. Exactly. It is. <laughs> it's like in Fight Club. You're too ugly and you're too blonde. It's just like, yeah. you know, so they do that. Others just quit or they just pass out. Mm. And then they come out there with stretchers and bring them in so that they could warm them up, give them a meal and send them home. It's just like, oh. Yeah, it's a hard, hard, <laughs> yeah, hard life. So here's where the nightmare always deviates, and it's a, the, up to that point. That's what happened. Now it starts to get horrifying. There's a boy next to him, and they trick him into failing, and they throw him into the forest. Physically throw him in the forest. The roots and branches wrap around the kid and drag him deeper into the forest. He can hear the kid crying and shouting. At, as the forest pulls him in, and you can just hear this kid crying. From yeah. the forest, his cries. And I don't mean that it's a cry. It could be screaming. It says they hear his cries. So they're shouting. And by sunset, a third of the people are gone. This is not even night yet. <laughs> night falls. The guards go inside. Oh, it's too dangerous out here for us. Good luck. Yeah. Uh, and now, the, and guess what? There's no more noise from the forest. It's gone quiet. So um, here, let's, let me get to this. I got a reading portion here. The night had a quality that was eternal, thought Zahariel. It had always existed and always would exist. The feeble efforts of men to bring illumination to the galaxy were futile and doomed to failure. He dimly perceived the strangeness of the concept as it formed in his mind, expressing ideas and words that he had no knowledge of, but which he knew were crushingly true. Afterwards, it was the sounds that Zahariel feared the most, Ordinary sounds of the forest at night, noises that he heard more than a thousand times in the past, were louder and more threatening than any sounds he'd heard before. At times he heard sounds he swore were the work of raptors, bears, or even the much-feared Calibanite lion. The crack of every twig, every rustle of the leaves, every call and scream in the night. They sounded heavy with menace, 
death lurk just behind him at his elbow. He wanted to run. To, so he's terrified, but you know, he was seven years of age, and he wanted to go home. Yeah. It's like, oh, my it's just, God. It's, bad, it? it's just... <laughs> I mean, it's just, Crazy. it's so, and here's the odd thing. Is this chaos creeping in his mind? Like, if, what is with this dream? I've got so many notes. It's from Zahariel's point of view, right? And he keeps yeah. dreaming about it. I think I think once you get to the point when um, you've got the the, the, the the forest making the strange noises um, and the uh, the kind of, the whisperings from the forest, the offers of temp- the temptating, uh, yeah. temptating offers of power. Um, I think at that point, that starts to tell you that there's something more to these dreams than just um, a dream. But it's they, something psychic, them, though, and they're they're very anti. Like you, you'll never make it. You're going to fail. They don't seem to be calling him to something so much as telling him. What he's doing breaking is him pointless. Da- yeah. Breaking him down um, exactly. and weakening him uh, and. Yeah, it's it's not good. Whatever this is, is not good. Um, it's maybe just trying to stop him entering, making him think he's not good enough for the order, or whatever. But it does. I mean, it offers him the power. You know, you you can't do it alone. We can do it. We can help. You know, <laughs> that's there. There's that thing which a a I think starts to suggest that he's a psychic, and B starts to suggest there's something wrong with the something on the world of Cal- of Caliban. Now, once again, this is all coming from Zahariel, and he looks and he knows that Nemiel is there. And just knowing that his cousin is standing there, if he can make it, I can make it. And there's a weird part where he actually says something about how he knows that he is, you know, like he is also Nemiel's, like, rock. That as long as he keeps standing there, his cousin yeah. will keep standing there. Um I, I, I wrote down here, I wonder about that, uh, you know, it keeps saying that they both relied on each other, but we don't necessarily know that. We know that Zaharyl needs Nimiel there, because he needs him, you know, that that's the thing. When he, he feels like he's going to yeah. quit, he looks over and says, well, if he's not quitting, I'm not quitting. Um, but did Nimiel need Zaharyl to make it? Is he stronger than him, only less proud? Or did Nimiel, was Nimiel always pulled down yeah. by Zaharyl climbing above him? Yeah, I mean, so there's, yeah, there's, a, I mean, there's yeah. a weirdness you can never, and it, it's never quite realized. There's only one or two parts in the book where it actually gets Nimiel's point of view. Yes. There's only one or two parts. The rest of it is all through Zaharyl, and you got to take it with a grain of salt because we're not even certain if he's like been corrupted or not. You know, I mean, you know, becoming a psyker is always I mean, not becoming one, but being born a psyker is always dangerous with the warp. Yes. Being born on a death planet that's been already been corrupted by the forces of chaos, that's got to be a little more dangerous. I mean, I'm just guessing. I don't know this, but I'm thinking yeah, it's got to be at least a the little pervasive more nature of chaos that we've come to know. That if this planet is, you know, embedded in chaos, then it's it's, it's always gonna there's always gonna be those uh, a risk is, is higher. Right. And so Dawn arrives, Master Ramiel comes out, introduces himself. I'm Master Ramiel, I'm your new teacher. This was your first test and your first lesson. You 12 made it because your minds were stronger. It takes great mental strength and fortitude of mind to become a knight. And that's, that's the, sort of the end of the dream here. Nimiel wakes him up, um, and they're getting dressed because... Brother Amadis is going um, and leading... On a hunt. And he's taking some of them with him. Yeah, um, taking the kids out, yeah. trying them out. They ride on black horses. 
All the other colors have been bred out of the horses. It's a lovely link to uh, the Ravenwing. That yep. Uh, um, the, yeah, in forty k, all the Ravenwing stuff's black. Yeah, the best riders and horses become Ravenwing Cav. I just love that the concept is there. And right, well, I mean, I, start, but I suppose, it, it, and it, it happens a lot with a lot of the legions. They grab their old. Um, I mean, you look at the space wolves, particularly, and the white scars we see later on. They they use a lot of their own their old world stylings as they come through, and they keep a lot of it. So there so, was no ra- Ravenwing in the first legion, but when Luther, or when, I mean, when the lion is found, then he calls them his dark angels, change the name, and introduces this concept of we're going to call these guys. The Ravenwing. The Ravenwing. Yeah. The bikes and all the fast yeah. attack stuff's going to be the Ravenwing in honor of what we used to have. Um, we meet a couple of new characters here. There's Atias? What? I don't even know how to... Atias? I don't want to call him Atticus, but that's from Kill a Mockingbird. But they're both very smart. So maybe we'll just call him Atticus. I'm going to call him Atticus. I like him. Atius, Atias, Atias. Oh, yeah. I haven't listened to the audio, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, so there you go. Okay, so yeah. we meet him. He's a bookworm, and Zahariel really helped him get by. And he says, yeah, he's, he, yeah. he's the uh, he's the teen nerd movie, right? He's the he's, yeah, he's the dorky guy who can't make uh. it through the physical stuff, and Zahariel helps him. And he says he saw a lot of himself in Atticus. Now, what did he see in himself in him? Because this kid is a failure, or he's gonna fail unless he gets help and if that's what he sees in him i think that's a little weird um i also think it may be telling that maybe he would have failed had it not been for nimiel i needed someone to lean on to get me by i needed someone to compete with someone that you know you know what i'm trying to say yeah he 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 knows how much that bond meant and he maybe he's going to try and be that bond for atius and nimiel's kind of a kind of a jackhole about him too like he makes yeah. fun of him, he doesn't like him. It's, um, it's the, again, it's the classic kind of four boys in a teen movie. Yeah, American Pie, whatever. You know, they're all slightly different takes on them. But you've got right. the four guys for four different characters, and they all kind of act fit one of the stereotypes. But it just seemed a weird that. reaction from his cousin. That listen, you either make it or you well, fall on your own merits. Well, if maybe this he's is his belief system. And I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but. This goes back to that whole question of does he need Zaharial the way Zaharial needs yeah, him? Yeah, exactly. And if he's already, I mean, he's getting, if he's already getting fed up with, you know, Zaharial's always leeching off me and kind of doing that, and he knows that Zaharial's pushing himself harder. He's like, I don't need another one. Yeah, kind of, kind of climbing up over me to get ahead of me. It's, it's not going to happen. I mean, and it's great that he helps his cousin. Don't think there's nothing wrong with two people there, and this person being like. You know, if he can do it, I can do it, and just constantly pushing himself. You know, but I mean, he is also older. Is this a little brother syndrome? Because I know my daughter hates when her little sister copies her in any way or tries to do what she did. And here's the Harriel is constantly just trying to outdo his cousin, and he sees it as friendly competition. But then again, he's always winning. I mean, there's a there's a lot of weird dynamics here that we don't get enough of Nimiel's point of view. To really know what he's thinking, but I think no. that the idea that he says, "Listen, he's got to make it on his own," that that says yeah. that speaks volumes about the the two he's, of them making just, it together. Yes, he's had enough of. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. and then you meet a lot Elioth 
Or Eliath. Uh, yeah, Eliath. And Eliath is, uh, he's the big, strong, muscular, not necessarily the brightest, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you got the two guys who are both really good and rivals and, and like sort of both big and handsome, even look alike. You know, then they got their nerdy friend and they got the big beefy guy for when, for when, uh, you know, when, when technical and quality sword play doesn't get the <laughs> job done. I will send in the meat wagon, you know. So you get all, so you do, you get your typical four characters in here. Um, he is totally mocking Atticus. Zahariel stops him in his helmet comp, says, listen, enough. Yeah. And uh, that's when Brother Amatis comes in on the private intercom on the voice helmet, and he's like, you know, good job. You know, you didn't, you just, you did what was needed to be done, praises his leadership. You know, allow the rivalry to exist, but prevent it from becoming destructive. Um, it's a secret lesson, another another secret. Good job, you did right, you know. Oh, they should be fighting. No, let them fight. Let them fight. Let them pit them against each other. It will make them stronger. Just don't let it get destructive. You know, um, that's I don't know what kind of, but they did it. With, they do it with you know, with Zahariel and Nimiel all the time. They let yeah. this rivalry sort of shape them. So yeah, I mean, yeah, they must know it. They must see it. The, the, the trainers must see it. Yeah. But as long as they're both benefiting from it, then they're going to allow it to continue. Um, I mean, reading through this bit, I felt it was a little bit forced. That whole section just seemed a little less fluid than some of the other sections before it. Well, I mean, there's good stuff in there. Right. Well, I mean, bringing them in, and the first place you bring them in is on the hunt. So and, while and they they're did, going did to the very forest, quickly as well, yeah. yeah. I it's think like, that's probably the issue. Right. It was just a bit like, whoa, boom, there we go. Might have been nice to introduce them back when they were in training. Yeah, he could have had them. And you don't um, have to have them succeeding or failing. Just have them be there. Have these discussions have take place name. after the training. Yes. Because you could do the same thing. You could have Atticus talking out of the verbatim and giving them lessons after their after their thing. You could have you know you could have it would it would feel a bit more natural then having that right that, before jiving going on, yeah. Right. Because what happens then is that they're out there and that's when uh it's great. He he puts them into their the little formation and everything goes out, and then uh, his thoughts were interrupted as they rode beneath the low-hanging branches into a shadowed clearing. The sounds of the leaves brushing against his helmet startlingly loud in the silence of the forest. Even as the thought struck him that the forest was silent, it was already too late. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, it got really quiet because everything's afraid because there's a monster here. And that's when the monster strikes. Mm. And, uh, and we get our first kind of, we know that every monster's different, but this yeah. monster is different <laughs> this is not natural it's you know um what we got uh it's it's large body was easily the size of one of the horses you know undulating as though a million serpents writhed beneath its glistening flesh like that's not natural yeah i mean yeah, yeah. undulating as though a million yeah it's like it, i thought it had tentacles or something it's like no its flesh is actually moving and creeping and crawling underneath like, so we're, we're here now. Th these aren't natural beasts. Yeah, it's something going head on. head snapped and bit the end. Okay. 
and bit at the end of a long snake-like neck, its jaws long and narrow, filled with razored fangs like the teeth of a woodsman's saw. Its wings were filmy and translucent, edged in ridges of horny carapace and ending in long barbed claws. It's just hideous, and it's bizarre. And Yeah. And and I say, from what we know of the warp, it's starting to become apparent that these creatures are, however, somehow coming from the warp. Like, we still don't know how or why. And it goes after Zahariel and knocks him off his horse. And I think it kills the horse, if I remember correctly. He falls on the ground and he's reaching for his pistol. And as he looks up, the thing is standing there ready to bite his head off. And that's the end of Chapter 3. So let's quick jump into four, and then we'll take our first break before we get into book two. All right, so here you get some nice action. He rolls to the side. Nemiel's firing the pistol from behind a tree because, hey, stay behind a tree. <laughs> you got cover. Take it. This thing is scary as hell. Especially for a nine-year-old. If I from around the corner down the block, I would do it, you know? I was scared of my mom at nine years old. They got this thing coming at him. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, you think, oh, wow, look, Harry Potter fought off that thing at 12. 12, Schmelv, these guys are nine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're walking out with gats and, and chain swords coming after <laughs> these things, man. Seriously, this is like, this is the craziest posse ever. There's a dude leading a bunch of nine and ten-year-olds out yeah. to fight manticores and chimeras and crap that scares like grown adult warrior men so here we go um Nemiel's firing from behind a tree puts three holes in him doesn't even slow him down uh the beast swipes at him with his wing knocks him over would have killed him but the tree he cut through the tree remember he was behind a tree the yeah. wing hits, he cuts through the tree. The act of knocking the tree out of the way slowed down his 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 strike enough that it didn't actually kill Nimiel. It just knocked him back 20 or 30 feet. Um, it goes for Atticus, but uh, Zahariel draws the attention back to him. Of course, jumping out, being brave. Hey, over here. Uh, he shoots it and jumps away, but it's fast. It misses, but like that long neck, it's like a snake head it misses but just spins and turns around and hits him back and knocks him in the hip knocks him through it into a tree he's yeah, trying I love, to yeah i go. love it and zario's armor hissed as um, breaches in its structure caused it to fail the mechanisms of its protective systems grinding and seizing so we've got a nine-year-old in semi-powered armor yeah that's here semi- so this is five yeah the five thousand years old we were talked about the thunder armor and that this is uh, kind of based on those kind of technologies you they're all equipped with this semi-powered armor which would help like allow them to shoot their pistols without breaking wrists i suppose well and also like it, it also explains that you know part of it is because of the, of the weight of yes. the armor it's helping him move so if this stuff starts breaking down He's not going to be able to move because he's not literally physically the armor is going to be too damn heavy to move without yeah, the augmentation. Absolutely. So he's got all this going on. Um, he gets up. His legs hurt. And as, he, as, he, as he's standing there trying to uh, secure himself on his one good leg, the beast bites Atticus's horse in half. That's how big the damn thing is. <laughs> it just yep. bites the horse in half. Um. One of the guys goes to drag Eddius to safety, and the beast bites his arm off. Uh, he screams, and then the while he's screaming about his arm, the beast dismembers him. Um, 
Zahario. Toy K is so pretty, isn't it? Oh, I know. And, and you, I, I, look, I swear I didn't get it the first time I read it. I must not have noticed that. The, I had to, I pictured them all as in their mid to late teens. It's easy to do. Yeah, it's easy to miss those 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 age drops. So and something you have to remind yourself of. Zahario goes to get his attention again, and he sees in its eyes this need to inflict pain. Once again, we're getting it from his point of view, but he does seem to have a keen insight into at least. It's weird. He doesn't seem to quite get his cousin. But he kind of gets the yeah. lion, he gets Luther, and he gets yeah. the beasts. He really mm. understands Luther and the beasts, which that's probably, and I'm just realizing this now, and that's probably not a good thing, but we'll get to that later. So it's about to bite Zahariel's face off, and a rider goes by and puts its sword right into its head. Then he turns and shoots it between the eyes. That's kind of Billy Badass. I like that idea. Oh, he's amazing. He's rising up, and right when he's about to die, Brother Amadis, who has not been seen in the fight yet, just comes out of left field, sticks the sword in one ear through the other, and then swings around. Draws a magnificent rotary-barreled pistol. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that just sounds awesome, doesn't it? it? Yep. Uh, That is one, you know that's one big caliber weapon. That's just... Oh, yeah. And just... Boom. Yeah, between the eyes. I mean, yeah. Right between the eyes. And then Brother Modest, he praises Zaharial, and he's like, I'm just protecting my squad. You know, once again, I'm just doing my duty. And then he collapses. He's out. Yeah. It, well, even the, no, 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 I've got to get him home. Rest. No, 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 I've got to get him home. So, yeah, it's setting up Zariel here, you know. Yeah. It's a bit it's a bit blatant through the whole chapter, but it's cool. If he does fall, still. and I know in the second book, and I'm not doing spoilers, but whatever happens, I'm still once again, I'm looking forward to reading that one again too, because I still don't know what the hell happened at the end of uh I'm trying to remember a lot of what happened in it, to be honest. There was the but yeah, there was that's right, we don't need to go into yeah. it, it's fine. But yeah, there's there's a lot it's of It's cool actually very similar on. to what happens at the end of this book. Yeah, another cliffhanger. Right no, but you know, that type of that type of monstrous thing. But I don't. Oh know, yes, sorry. Yes, exactly. I, mean, yeah, you know, I understand what you mean. Yeah. So I don't know where he's going or what's going on, but whatever. No. But so Nemiel's there, and he's like, "You were lucky, and lucky is a finite resource." That is a great statement. You were lucky. Yes. And lucky is a, you're going to burn out of your luck sooner or later. Um, for years. Now, this is a this is a great part. For years, when Zahariel tells the story, Nemiel would privately remind him that he was lucky, and he would never let it go. Dude, you were lucky. Remember that. Now. And it annoys Zahariel to no end that he keeps doing that to him. Um, where is it? It's right here. Last paragraph on page 20. Something about the whole affair seemed to have worked its way under Nimiel's skin, as though the battle had become a source of subdued annoyance to him, even irritation. He never showed it on his face, nor let it invade his tone, but at times it felt as if he were chiding Zahariel in some way, as though he felt compelled to subtly make the point that all his cousin's later successes, all his glories, had been built upon a lie. Now, once again, let's go with this. And you know what? I was having a discussion with my friend about unreliable narrators, and maybe we'll discuss that after this as we come back to this book. You know, when we do the uh, the yeah. discussion on, uh, you know, in between books. But it, I mean, we were having a discussion as to whether the unreliable narrator happens way too much in this book series. But for this particular one, Nemiel, there's nothing in his tone. There's nothing in his words, there's nothing in his actions, and there's nothing in his looks that say yeah, I, he's irritated, I, but he feels yeah, you, he is. 
if you read it as as taken, he's just it's, it's just a warning. No, you you overstepped yourself, yeah. uh, and you were lucky. And in the future, you can't afford to be lucky. You have to be better, and you have to do this, and you have to be a bit more careful. Yeah, if that was a if that was you know my best friend saying that to me, and I knew that he meant well for me, I'd be like, oh, you maybe you're right. Actually, I need to do this. I need to do that. But, but if now you look he reminds at it, him every time he tells the story. And now that leads me to question: How is he telling yeah. the story? Is he, you yes. know, is he embellishing? Is, is he... there some glory in the story? Because yeah. if he has to keep saying it at the end, then obviously, here's my guess: If Zahariel is saying during the story, you know, I was lucky, Nimiel would stop reminding him if he actually says it himself. But apparently, yes. he's not. I have a. I, I'm wondering if this is a story being told by someone like Lucius or someone like Saul Tarvitz. You know, who's telling, yes, what kind, yeah. you know, what type of a story is this? We all remember, and we went for a couple of books with, with Edelon telling stories, yes. and they never quite wound up the right way. And I'm not saying they changed that much, but if he keeps reminding him, you know, all Zahariel has to do is mention be if he wants to that, stop yeah. it. And uh, I'm just wondering think, if he's projecting, because yes. he's giving no clues to it, and it's like, this. in fact, this last line, his later successes have been built on a lie. Where do, where do uh, yeah. you come up with that? Unless maybe that's in the back of your own head. I mean, I don't want to overanalyze these guys, but it really sounds like projection to me. Yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really tough. Again, we don't get enough information. And I think your discussion that you had about unreliable uh, sources and, and, and point of view, um, this book feels very different from almost every other book in that respect. Um, I but think we're dealing with it. You it do does get come it. up a lot in the series. Like it comes up and they're fighting and they don't name them. They just name a symbol or a shape. And if you're a complete 40K lore master, you know, total nerd. And that's not, I'm not saying that in a bad way because I, uh, I aspire to that height of nerddom. I just don't get it yet. I'm reading it and it's like, why don't you just tell me that that's the goddamn 13th and I know who it is. You know sure. what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, something- no, I appreciate that. I, I do think that as you look at other books um, – they, the unreliable re, uh, source tends to relate to another book more than in this book, where <laughs> within itself it starts to be really unreliable. Right. Um, and and those other books, I, this does feel different, and that I think that probably in reflection, looking back at it, is part of the issue. And I, I again, I'd like to think it's intentional. But I haven't read much Mitchell Scanlon's stuff. Well, I haven't either. Exactly. So, and it might it might just be not brilliant writing. Oh, it could be. I don't. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. And again, we we can't. I, I can't mean, judge it, that because I've not read any of his stuff. It works in the context of the story. It works in the context of the story. You know, I I when I whenever I read this, especially this, because and, and no offense to anyone in Black Library, but I remember. I mean, like my boss at work knows that I do this particular podcast. Sure. And that I'm bringing the literature teacher's spin on science fiction, you know, writings, which a lot, you know, the science fiction and fantasy gets poo-pooed, yeah. at, you know, as not necessarily as, as a really proper worthy reading. reading, proper reading. And she just thinks it's great that I'm trying to do something like this. But uh, there's times where I'm trying to balance that and saying, you know, I hope I'm not reading too I'm, not, You know, I don't want to give... I don't want to take is, anything away from these writers, but I also don't want to be giving them too much credit. I mean, but it all seems to work here. You know, it Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And and this is one of the things. It's not wrong to question. Absolutely, but 
as you read through the book, maybe we just didn't quite get enough information to yeah. make it really sit. That's all. And and here's and here's where I wanted to get into because this is the part in the notes here, and then we'll like I said we'll finish this up and we'll take a break. But a sure. week later, he has to tell his story again. Zahariel does, and it says every time he tells it, it seems a little more thrilling. There's high ideals and grand adventure. Um, in truth, he expected to die. He expected everybody to die because that beast was psychotic. And they would have died except for Brother Amadis. They would have all died. But nobody yes. wants to hear about the fear or the doubt. Nobody wants the truth. They want an unflappable hero. And in his mind, the victory is more special because he was afraid. But nobody wants to hear that. So he has to hide the fear. He has to hide his uncertainty. In fact, where let's get right here. The end of the chapter part, to his mind, has been more special because he's afraid. His fellow supplicants, however, seemed to think it was improper to speak of emotion at all. It was as if fear was a secret shame in every human heart, and his listeners wanted to be reassured that their heroes did not feel it, as though it meant they might one day be freed from their own fear. It seemed to Zahariel that this was wrong. The only way to overcome fear was to confront it, to pretend it did not exist or might somehow disappear one day only made it worse. And once again, secrets, lies, this idea of telling a history. He's telling the story, and nobody wants the truth. People don't want, want the a truth. Good story. People yeah. want a good story. And, and, it, and, and it feels wrong to him, yet he gets caught up in it. Yeah. So it, he's got this inner, inner turmoil, inner fight about, oh, I know what's right under my sense, but I also know what's accepted and what people want. There is more conflict, and there is more duplicity in the characters in this book than just about any other so far, at least the, uh, this far in the series so dirty dark angels that's why I mean, but not even i mean even in fulgrim i mean you've got people <laughs> i mean come on you know he's thinking of himself in these lofty ideals and he's becoming base you know and there's these hedonists uh and there's there's so much of this you know uh it's what's the word i'm looking for just uh, you know, being one way, saying one thing, doing another—they're just duplicity. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's, a, there's a duplicitousness in the nature of these people yeah. that is so overwhelming. And the idea that we don't have any secrets, everything's out in the open. You know, every time somebody says this in this book, my BSO meter breaks, and I have to stop reading and put it down and go fix the BSO meter because, oh my God, what do you mean? There's no secrets here. Even the lion says it later in the book, and it's just like, wait, what? Are you that unaware of yourself, or are you all just such liars? And I just, you know, and part of it is with every planet seems to either, you know, remember we talked about how each planet seemed perfectly suited to the to the Primarch? We had, you and I had this discussion a little bit, almost too perfectly suited. You know, did they shape the place, or did the place shape them? Yeah. And I'm wondering how much of, how much of the lion is a liar? I know he's keeping secrets. You could tell his secrets are all over the place. Uh, but it just it makes me wonder how much of this because everyone seems to sort of, you know, embody where they came from, and this place is just a, a, a death world full of nothing but lies and nastiness. And I'm just, you know, as you read this, you're like, wow. There's you really go back over it, and it's just like, you know. You know, and maybe maybe Nemiel's right. Maybe he thinks Zaharyl should at least mention the luck, and that maybe he'd shut up about it if Zaharyl would just say, "You know, I was lucky." You know, don't don't fool yourself, guys. I was lucky. It, you know, 
understand that much. They don't have to hear maybe, about yeah, all the maybe Nemiel's, stuff. Maybe Nemiel's more straight-laced. Yeah, you know, just be honest. You know, you were lucky. Thinking. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, he wouldn't... If you... If you give a, if you tell a story every time we get together to to, to our friends or to new people we meet, mm-hmm. and every time you tell a story, you leave out something, and I keep coming to you, and you know, you were lucky. Don't forget about that, dude, because it really sounds like you're forgetting about it. At some point, if I keep saying that to you, at some point, you're just going to add that to the story just to get me to shut up. <laughs> you know? Um, wouldn't yeah. you? I mean, I mean, maybe you wouldn't. But I'm th- if it was the other way around, and I kept telling a story, and at the end of every time I told that story, and you were with me, and it was and it was the truth, and you knew it was the truth. Yeah. Exactly. It's just yeah. God bless it. Added. To- Why aren't you then? Well, nobody wants to hear that. No, nobody wants to hear that you were afraid. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to hear that. But you know, nobody's saying that you can't be. A- I mean, look at Brother Amadis. Hey, yeah, I did all that stuff, but that doesn't make me special. There's still things, you know, you know, it takes all of us. And he's, it, maybe he's, maybe that's slipping. I don't know. But uh, you know what? Let's take a break. And we'll come back with uh, book two. Excellent. Welcome back to part two of our Descent of Angels review. Yes, thank you uh, for sticking with us. Book two, Beast. Okay, so a couple of years go by, and uh, Zahariel is uh, well known in the Order because uh, his, his part in the fight has been Amadis tells the whole tale of how brave it is that he was, and his high esteem has brought Zahariel to notice of other people. Uh, he winds up spending his time honing his fighting skills, you know, because of that, because he just felt like he came up completely short. But Amadis is telling everyone of his bravery, and uh, so now he's got to practice even harder. <laughs> yes, to be ready. Yeah. Master Ramiel is reminding them that they're more than just killers. They're protectors of the people of Caliban. And uh, Nemiel got no praise after that that fight either. He just got hospital time. Nobody was giving him any, any bonus or anything like that. Um, he actually says, do you think it was just sentiment? And Zahariel's like, I don't know it. You know, it, it or no, I'm sorry. Do you think it was sentiment? He asks him if he thinks the creature was sentient. Yeah, yeah. the creature was sentient. Yeah. And I don't know, but it felt like it was. Uh, he was the fly, and the thing was a spider. Um. Meanwhile, <clears throat> they're cleaning their guns. Um, Zahariel's cleaning his gun because it pulled to the left, and he arm, Knight in the Armory tells him to clean it again, and he's all offended. That these are the guys implying that no, there's nothing wrong with that gun. You just can't shoot. Yeah. yeah basically, that's kind of how he feels. Um, yeah, we get um, because uh, Nemiel was like, you know, the armor is know what they're talking about. Zariel was like, 
Really, you're taking their side? But Nemio's replies, side? I, I didn't, I'm not taking any sides. So no, you, right. you, you're seeing that, you know, maybe this is one of those bits where maybe you're seeing the different side, possible different side of the relationship. Right. And then he was just like, I'm just, just agreeing with him. But Zaria was looking at him like, you're digging at me again. Exactly. Okay, cool. You know, after this argument, Amaris shows up. Oh, you're coming to see Cypher and you're moving up. So right after... Nemiel tells him that it, you know, it's, it's basically it's all you think you know it's all about you, uh, and then he storms off. Amaris shows up and takes him off. It's more about him. So yeah, yeah, and he takes him deep down into the castle, into the catacombs. So he's gonna you know he can see his breath in the torchlight as he's going down, and he's going down this you know go the ciphers there. Yeah, I mean, first off, uh, we get that cipher is a title um, and not a name. Right. And and kind of the old fluff, it was Cypher was the person. Uh, you know, there was this character in 40K called Cypher. And it was, you know, you assumed that that was his name, but it's quite cool that here we have, it is just the title. So we could be looking at various different Cyphers. Uh, and we do have two different Cyphers in this book, but looking in the future, it may not be the same person. So he starts him walking the spiral. Anytime you're training, you got to walk on this spiral. you got to keep turning back and around and around. And Cypher starts quizzing Zaharyl on what it means to be the Cypher. That's where you get all your backstory. It works. What do you know about the Cypher? All right, I'll tell you everything I know. So the audience, pay attention now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Point uh, out. Right. Then they get this weird thing about the uh, what power do people have. You know, I'm a senior position. I have little, real little power. I'm kind of symbolic. You know, mm. and quickly, and he starts asking him questions, and quickly, like while he's doing his walk through the circle, he's like, no stalling and looking for answers. Say the first thing that comes to your mind. It's going on this, you know, just sort of this trained, you know, influence that they're trying to do this, you know, this automa- uh, automaticity. Yeah, yeah. So he finishes all this stuff up, and he's okay, and then the lion shows up and says, oh, come on with me. We're going to go have a talk. And so they go up a spiral now to the top of the highest tower. <laughs> so then the lion's standing out there, and it's this okay, This is some weird like movie moment. I mean, can you just like picture this in your head? There he is standing on the tower, hands behind his back, looking up at the sky full of stars, you know, blonde hair waving. I mean, it's just like, it's it's just this oh, yeah. typical scene, you know. The campaign's nearly over, you know. But that's just phase one, you know. And it doesn't need Morgan Freeman talking over it. Exactly. You know, as a Harriel, you know, he tells him he's a good leader, and he's like, I couldn't save everyone. And the line's like, yeah, we'll get used to it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're never going to save everyone. There's a really, it's just a weird conversation going on here. It's like I've almost reached my path and, you know, there's about three months left. Then he starts asking what's going on in the stars. Yeah. I, I mean, I've I've written down, I, I was a bit confused by this, so I didn't really quite know where it was going, what it was doing. Um, with the exception of the foretelling of the Emperor's arrival. Um, and the quest to claim the stars. 
Right. Uh, and to show that Zariel is moving up through the, you know, becoming more and more well-known and taken note of. It's, I don't right. know. It's just, I mean, it's just weird. It's like, I actually wrote, you know, is this, there's something that's ingrained in him? Like, does, how does he know? I mean, there's just this weird, like, what if the past, you know, is a lie? Maybe we should, you know, just get rid of the past. Just shuck it off and yeah. then... I mean, this is a little weird conversation. We'll be completely free if we have no past to tie us down. We're really free. And there, there's a... I, I'm not certain what to make of this. No, I'm not. The only thing I can think of is, you know, he talks about... Because he doesn't have a past. You know what I'm saying? If that's what it's yeah, kind of supposed to be. It's a bit strange. And then... it's. I mean, it's just such a... Yeah, it's it's really tricky. I mean, he the lion wants to concentrate on the future. And I think that's where he's talking about wiping away the past. Is like, you know, let's not dwell in that. Let's move on. Let's see what we can do. But he says how they'll be like set free, and I wonder if that's maybe a big yeah. mistake. And you know, and and uh, or maybe you know, I don't. I just. Yeah, it's not particularly clear. Or maybe he does think. Maybe he thinks he should, you know, we should be free of our past stuff and just move towards the future and not worry about our past. And then the emperor shows up and tells him, you've got a whole past, and now you've got to live up to it. And so... Yeah, I mean... I mean, I don't know. I'm, I just... just yeah, I, quite... I, I really can't draw anything from it. it. It seems a bit too jumbled and a bit too vague. Um, as I say, this whole chat, you know, all I've really got from it is, okay, yep, um, okay, we get a nice little bit about where we are now in the time period that's changed. Awesome, so that's set that up. Zariel's become someone the lion wants to talk to, so we know Zariel's heading somewhere, yep. um, if we didn't know that already. And the lion's got these dreams of um, the golden light and everything else. And, you know, most Primarchs have some form of psychic ability. Maybe this is just that little bit, you know, he, he knows the Emperor's coming within himself, but whether he doesn't quite understand it. Um, but, but beyond that, it's a little bit jumbled and mixed. And that's sort of the end of the chapter. Then he's like, you know, then he just, he feels all, you know, he's unafraid of the future. You know, he's ready to go. Yeah. Brave New World. Okay, and that's how Chapter 5 ends up. Mm. So first book, I mean, it was, I, I mean, I, I know they're catching us up and showing what happened in the in the gap, but I don't know if it worked. So uh, Chapter mm. 6, Crusade goes for another year before the last bastion of monsters was to be assailed, and the North Wilds had yet to be purged. So this is... The last section. Uh, the forest is so dense that it's hard to mount an offensive. Even the Raven Wing won't ride into this place in the North Wilds unless they're commanded to. Uh, settlements there are heavily defended. They call the few unhappy residents. <laughs> and um, the Knights of Lupus are right there, too. Yeah, it's their ter the territory of the only knights who were vehemently opposed to the idea, or, or who are still vehemently opposed. They're the, they alone among the dissenters never joined the order, actually. Yeah, they stayed. Yeah. And so Luther talked to them somehow. He kind of worked quietly in the back, just was smoothing things over, some sort of compromise that nobody knew what it was. Yes. Um, and the Knights of the Lupus just sort of stay 
on their little area in their fortress and by the North Wilds for like 10 years. And now that the North Wild is all that's left, oh, you know, that's uh, the Lions like, okay, well, we're going to come in there. Well, that's all that's left, so here we come. And, uh, yeah, that's going to lead to a fight, <laughs> basically. Yes, yes, it's only going to run one way. Yeah. So then it overcuts over, and now uh, Emil and Zaharial are practicing. And they're practicing this weird double circle. Did- yeah, I mean, that's it's not... I think it's kind of the older they used to do it the squares, didn't they? The British, right? Things like that. And when the square broke, someone stepped in to take that place. Right. If someone looked like breaking through, the second system would go through. I think that one, this one's a bit more. Each man protective left, used. and the yeah. inner circle supports the outer circle. Yeah, it fills up the gaps. Newer recruits try for over fifteen minutes to breach the circle, but they can't. And they're in the side, the second circle, and they can't breach the circles because it's impenetrable and unknowable. There's a part in here where someone gets busted. I mean, they're fighting with sticks and all, but I think they said somebody broke their arm during practice. Yep. It seems like that happens a lot. Yeah, boy um, uh, shouted names and as he declared boys dead and those boys limped from the circle holding bruised and broken arms and nursing their shame. So, yeah, more <laughs> than one. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like- it's, it, again um if you look at the way the space marines um the training to become a space marine it's a similar kind of thing you know you're you're showing up maybe how they carried on doing it there's no there's no room for weakness yeah and uh so after the workout Nemiel's like oh they're working us too hard and and Zario's like oh, cuz probably cuz we're going to war and then uh, Elias and Atticus are over there, and they're like, what? And he's like, oh. He, was, he wasn't told not to tell anybody, but he felt funny telling. Yeah. Which, if he wasn't told not to tell anybody, why do you feel funny about telling unless you're keeping secrets again? Yes. I shouldn't give away this piece of information, you know? It's just ingrained that, uh, you know, don't just don't be blabbering. Um, that's when Amadis arrives. Uh, Zaharyl and Emil are in full uniform, Best people on display. Um, everybody's here, and the Knights of the Lupus—I guess many Knights of the Lupus—defective, defected over to the Order when they refused to join. Like some of them were like, even yeah, half of their the own or- order yeah. quit. Yeah, the Order has been taking loads of loads of people from other orders anyway, so it's bound to be that some of those would as well. Right, and the Knights of the Lupus basically nobody is coming, and they have very few people coming even to learn. They're all going to the Order. So they're just basically dying off. And uh, Amadis basically uh, warns them because they're basically like, well, you know, they're just going to die off anyway. What do we care? And Amadis tells them, listen, don't. <laughs> um, this is when they're the most dangerous. It thinks, they, you know, it thinks it's cornered. It's the, the beast is most dangerous when it thinks it's cornered. And so this is where you got to watch out. And so. You know, they got there and they're showing all the show of force and vitality and all the life and all the. They've got all their guys out there. Oh, you know, just it's another show of look at all that we have that you don't, you know? Yeah. And then the guys show up and this Lord Sartana arrives and he walks in and he's looking at the lion and the lion's looking at him and they don't like each other. And just the fact that he's just scowling at the lion and doesn't care that the lion's scowling at him speaks a lot to his strength of will, I think. You know what I mean? Yes, he's got cojones. Yeah, most people would quaver, not this guy. And um, 
he walks in and says, I wanted a private meeting. And then, hold on here. What does the lion say to him? The lion turned to Lord Sartan and extended his hand. I welcome you to the circle chamber where brother meets brother without rank or station, where all are equal welcome. He said, I wanted a private meeting, not this. And he goes, the order is a place of honesty, Lord Sartana. His voice conciliatory and smoothing. We have no secrets and wish to be as transparent in our dealings with you. He's like, then what about the theatrics? He goes, you know, you're going to parade all these guys. This is not theatrics. They're reminders of our status or your brotherhood status. So he's like, oh, you did this just to humiliate me? And, you know, that's when Luther jumps in the middle. It's just this fighting automatically. Bickering, yeah. Yeah. Basically, it comes down to Sartana saying, you violated our treaty. And he goes, wait a minute. You killed our hunters. They were in the beasts. They were looking for beasts, and you killed them. And they're like, well, they're not supposed to be there. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, those things killed stuff outside of the borders. We chased it back in there. We're going after it. You're not going to stop us. And uh, and he says, you know, the one beast alone from Endriago suffered 200 casualties from one beast. <laughs> this is when Sartana's like, this is supposed to be a haven for them. And he's like, are you crazy? We're going to clear out everything and leave one pocket of these guys remaining. Yeah. It's a I, bit naive to think they'd stop at there. Yeah. He goes, this is ridiculous. So then... Um, he leaves. He's like, well, then, all right, well, then you're setting the stage for war. I'm going back to my place. Stay out of the forest. And he leaves. And then Amadis comes running up, and he's like, what town did you say? He was it's in Andriago. He killed 200 people there, and that's where he, Amadis is from. So he declares a quest against the beast. Absolutely. Um, and that's the end of the chapter. I like um, the Knights of the Lupus with the wolf um, pelts that they're wearing, wolf cloaked warriors, yes. big bushy moustaches, you know, and space wolves, anyone? <laughs> and they're there yeah. with them, you know. Yeah, you know, they don't get on. That's a nice little <laughs> exactly. foreshadowing of that. But Jeez. the um, you, if you look at the, uh, the the Knights of the Lupus, tend to put, um, Sartano puts over a fairly good argument. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he said he was promised this, and Luther's just like, you know, you, you, you couldn't have thought that's what that meant. Or the line no, like, no. I've, I've put it as well. You know, the attitude of the line is is reminiscent of the Great Crusade. It's total dom- dom- uh, domination. Don't matter the cost. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, for, it's for your good. You will do it. <laughs> yep. Simple as that. Uh, all right. So um, on to ch- – well, my book says Chapter 6 again here. I was like, huh? So this is actually sure. Chapter 7. So that was weird. My book had that weird typo. It had two of them labeled as six. So chapter six, that's actually chapter seven. <laughs> yes. All right. Zahariel's finest moment. Uh, weeks shy of his 15th birthday. He forgets most of his uh, prehistoric life. This is where they first start talking about how he, you know, won't remember things from this life when he becomes an Astartes. Whatever the case, the memory would burn brightly in his mind throughout his days. He would keep it with him throughout the centuries as one of the few significant remembrances left to him from the time of his youth. It would alter the course of his years in subtle ways, for it would help him remain true to his ideals. It would sustain him when every other hope was gone. He would always see it as one of the defining moments of his existence. It was the beginning of his sense of self, the seed story of his personal myth. It said these things to him. Once he had been a man, once he had been a knight, 
once he had fought the good fight and protected the innocent. Once upon a time, he had hunted monsters. That's really good. I like that. Yeah. You know? Um, but it's it's weird that there's this, this story, this myth. You know, he sees himself as some legendary character. He's You know, he's not following that... The footsteps of the modest, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, certainly got an elevated opinion of his abilities. Right. But then you get this whole moment coming up here. So Amadis has been gone for five months, and Zemism, he misses being special. Zahariel misses being special. It's hard to adjust to being ordinary, you know? Oh, yeah. Because Amadis isn't there taking him around and doing all these extra things, and everyone else is treating him like he's just another, and he doesn't care for that. But then you've got this weird... Hold on. I got it right here. This next part I thought was strange. Zahariel had tried to keep Nimiel's desire to best him at everything from annoying him. But try as he might, his cousin's constant niggling attempts to undermine him began to ossify into a core of resentment in his heart. Um, it's funny. When he's always winning, you know, it, it's okay. When he's, you know, it's okay when he's winning and Zahariel takes it well, but... Uh, the fact that he's still, it's like, why is he still trying? It's just, I don't know, there's just, it's a really weird sort of response. Uh, you know, he's starting to resent his cousin, even though he's winning and beating his cousin. Uh, yeah, it's, maybe it's just that, look, I'm better than you. Yeah. Well, why Why can't you accept it? Yeah. I mean, you, well, and then he came out and yelled at him. He goes, you think you're better than me. So, okay, we both know that. So, <laughs> so. Strange, uh, strange relationship. Yeah. So, as the crusade is going on, more and more the focus is going on the Knights of the Lupus because the the beasts are almost all gone. You only need a few, so you need less and less guys hunting them. So they're moving more guys towards this Knights of the Lupus thing. Um, they're back pushed into their fortress on Blood Mountain, uh, and they're hearing that it's it's under siege. This is what uh, Zahariel and Nemiel are hearing. Um, yeah, Atius and that are talking about. It. Nemiel thinks that they're what they're doing is perfectly right. They're using basically scorched earth tactics. Everything that they're, you know, the the knights lupus are destroying everything in their way as they're retreating. And he's like, you know, we should just we should just wipe them out. Zaharia looks at this war and says, you know, the lion really pushed him to this. Like, didn't give him any other option. Yeah. And so he's got an issue with that. Like, he feels he's, like he's being he starts, lied to. Yeah, he's, he's looking beyond what actually happened. Um, he's just kind of questioning his truth of what he sees as the truth. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it matters because we may be about to fight a war under false pretenses. Um, and at this point, it was reflecting, in my head, back to your Locans, your... Um, you know, all those characters that we've seen, the Garrows and all that. Now, I can see what's happening, but let's look beyond that. Let's not just accept that the lion said we're going to go and fight them. It gives you a bit of hope that Zariel's yeah, kind I of mean, thinking he, the right way. Exactly. You're watching us going, okay, he seems like a good guy, you know, as you're reading this. Uh, Nemiel really comes across as just really kind of nasty. He's sitting quoting the verbatim. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, kill them all, wipe them out. Um, but he's not really – he's not – it's, he's not questioning their value. You know, Zahariel's like, oh, you know, they're good people. We shouldn't be wiping them out. We should be working together. He's like, no, they're against us. And so we should wipe them out. And it's funny because, you know, I don't care what their value is. They're the enemy. 
and that's all they are to me. And he's like, dude, he seriously, who exemplifies a space marine is Nemiel. <laughs> yes, big time. You know, way more than that. Just all the questioning now. I mean, granted, it happened, and it happened with the good guys in in a lot of parts in the first few books. But um, just that idea of I'm not no, we're we're getting rid of these guys, and that's it. While Zaharial's thinking about this whole thing and how he just doesn't really like it, the sirens go off. And uh, Amadis is returned from hunting the beast, and he is messed up. Oh, yeah. I mean, he is bleeding all over the place. He calls Zaharial. He gives Zaharial his gun and tell him, tells him that the beast is a Calibanite lion. Which it's so weird that everybody always wanted to kill one. I mean, Luther. I mean, uh, the lion killed killed one, and everyone yeah. was like, "Oh, I wish I could kill one of these." Why would you even think that? I mean, not that. I mean, but it, since there's since there's never any duplicates, it seems a weird thing for everybody to want to do when everybody says there are no two that are alike. It was just. I mean, just that just seemed weird to me. Yeah, I mean, maybe there could be similarities. So. Yeah, he, he maybe each line slightly different, but yeah, possibly it's they're all they're all they're all unique except for the ones that aren't. <laughs> so then he dies, and Zahariel's holding his gun and gets all filled up with emotion. He gets in his feelings, and then he declares a quest against the beast that just killed. Shock, Amadis. horror. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, dun, it was dun, a bit uh, yeah. tropey. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it had to be a quest against a uh, Calibanite lion as well. Yeah, but as I put, at least he's fifteen, and fifteen's a warrior age, uh, and has <laughs> been down the years at least. Yeah, you know the old tribes, and that fifteen was you would expect it to go out and fight. So, yeah, <laughs> at least he's considered from, a man. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. So Nimiel is just like you shouldn't have done that. You really shouldn't have done that. What are you thinking about? Um, you know the 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 other the other knights think it's hubris for you yep. to try to do that, and you know you're you're just you're, you're you're that your pride is doing this that you're not ready, and he's like, look, he gave me his gun, he handed it to me and told me what it was, I I had to if I'm going to carry his weapon, I got to at least try to go after the thing that killed him. And so now this is a weird thing. Talk about having weird, uh, what are their, their, their customs? Right. Zahariel is between life and death now. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, so they put him in a, his own separate room. This is the room for the people who have declared a quest but haven't finished it yet. So he's yeah. between life and death, between boyhood and manhood, all this stuff, you know, um, the ritual, and then... You know, Nimiel still thinks he's just crazy. And he's like, well, I never even thought not to, which is just, you know, of course he didn't. Of course he never thought that that would be a bad idea. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, he is, you know, I start wondering how much of this is getting, you know, because in the beginning he was scared. Now you're seeing these these things he's doing. And it's like, well, nobody wants to hear about someone being scared. And so suddenly all these things, you know, it, it almost seems like he's fulfilling his own. His story is changing to fit the way he. Uh, you know, learned that a story should go, I guess. But so the verbatim tells us to strive and to test ourselves, and that's what I'm doing. 
and um, they toast to this because this is the night before he's going off on his quest. This is like his going away party, and it's like a death party because everybody thinks yeah. he's going to die. Yeah, you right. know, so and lots of people do to these things. Exactly. So then they they toast to his return, and Nemiel's got tears in his eyes because, of course, he does. Yeah, that's pushed out. At least uh, Nemiel's like you know he's honest. It seems from the way you read it, he cares about Zariel. Yeah, like dude, dude, you know you were lucky last time. This thing's even worse than that. There's one of you, you know, seriously, man, it's just not worth it, kind of thing. Right, and and it, and it seems genuine. Even yeah, say the eyes glistening with tears at the end. There's a genuine I have affection. To. It's my there. duty. I declared it. I know you did, you big galoot. You and your sense of honor. Yeah. Yeah. Now they just have to have some pudding. And then it's time to go. So chapter seven. One of the woodsmen is taking him, leading Zaharel, who's there on his horse. Um. Uh, apparently, a party left. And Driago for firewood and food because they was that or starved and freeze to death. And uh, they went out a bunch of them together and nobody's seen them again. Um, so everybody knows what happened to them. Um, and uh, so 180 people. The, the woodsman's talking about how that's a lot of orphans. I don't even think about that. He killed people outside the town. So it's all adults. Yeah. So let's, he goes, there's a lot of orphans and there's nobody left. You know, nobody leaves the town unless they have to, but they had to. They needed supplies. And he's like, and this is what happens. And now we've got even more orphans. And they're, it's going to be really hard on them. Um, it's kind of a sad little state. But then he talks about this guy, the way he, the way he says goodbye to him. I, he says goodbye to him and there's... Uh, he walks away, he didn't look back, and uh, what was it? He uh, he hadn't used any of the standard expressions of farewell. There'd been no mention of the life tomorrow or similar phrases. In their place, he had made the curious decision in his choice of words. He wished him a safe passage in the dark. So, um, you know, another guy who just thinks, oh, boy, you're not coming back. That's it. And then there's this watchers in the dark myth that he talks about that the people have. Because he talks about these superstitious people who believe in religion and stuff like that. When you know he's educated and he's a knight and he sees what's there, um, they thought monsters were the evil spirits of the planet taking form. And Zahariel is just like, okay, whatever. Now he honestly, there's a whole part where he talks about how he thinks people are basically good, and they would never willingly choose bad, which is always actually what makes the best villains. Yes, those who have a pure belief in that they're doing the right thing. Uh-huh. Zahariel reasoned that men were intrinsically good and granted the opportunity they would choose the best and brightest path from among the roads on offer. No man would ever willingly perform an evil act unless forced to it by circumstances. So most people would choose good. Everybody chooses going to do good, do what they know is right. Um, you know, it's that, that sort of, you know, I know what I'm doing is right, so I can do it. I'm, yes. you know, so, uh-oh. Maybe that's not what it means. Maybe I'm reading into it, but it just seems like you've got this, once again, these weird double standards and these saying one things and acting another way. Um, So, okay, so he, while he's thinking all this, he gets to where the lightning split tree is because there's got to be, you know, 
go down to Dead Man's Gulch. Turn left at 14 Skeleton Drive. Once you get up there, you're going to be at Insanity Circle. It's just like... Yeah, so, it's a bit much at times. <laughs> so he's at the lightning split tree, and he heads out towards the beast, and he starts to feel depressed. Like he feels physically put upon... Uh, he's alone, feels isolated, wor- yeah. worthless, and he starts to realize like this is weird. Why would I feel this way? I'm, uh, I, you know, I. <laughs> it's funny that the first time he realizes he's thinking something strange is when he thinks he's worthless. Man, I'm like worthless. Wait a minute, I'm not worthless. I'm Sahariel. What? <laughs> something is wrong here. And that's when he really, you know. And then he says, "Wait, I am Zahariel of the Order," and he whispers it, and then he yells it. And when he yells it, all of a sudden he can see these watchers. And there's this long interplay of the watchers. You know, they tell him to leave. The place is corrupted. Go. Don't look back. And then the other one's like, he's corrupted. We should kill him. Kill him. Yeah, he's touched by it. Uh, So, I mean, are we to assume that this is chaos? No, he's a psyker. All psychers are touched by chaos, aren't they? Well, yeah, they tap into the very nature of the warp. So that doesn't mean good or bad. They're just saying that he's no, tainted. No, it means that it means that he has um, a connection to the warp stuff of chaos. Yeah. So, yeah. So when they say corrupted, it doesn't necessarily mean he's bad. Because <laughs> let's keep this as <laughs> ambiguous as possible. Yes. Because <laughs> I don't, don't want to know what's going on or anything. Uh, so he swears to help them oppose evil. Listen, I don't know what you're talking about corrupted, but I want to stop evil. And they agree, but they tell him, listen, you got to leave and you got to leave now. And so he leaves and he's thinking about all of this discussion. Okay, question. Do you know what they are and I don't? The Watchers? Yeah. Um, very little was written about them beforehand. You you had that little model that carries around the helmet. Okay. Of Azrael. Have you seen the 40K model? I don't think so. Uh, it's Azrael and his, I think it's Azrael in his Terminator armor. And then there's this little hooded, almost like a Jawa thing, holding his helmet, his helmet bearer. Um, and those were the watchers and we were just, they were part of the thing. But okay. they just seem to be these um, curious little um, beast things, which. Oh, I pictured them as tall and thin for some reason. Well, I say that um, the, the, the model was like you know came up to like the knee, maybe a little bit more of a Terminator. Mm. Um, but you know how they came to be on this planet, what they are, you know, they seem to be against uh, the chaos. Okay, um, it's again, it was one of uh, reading the book for the first time. It was like, oh, they're the Watchers, awesome! They've kept the Watchers in. What are the Watchers? Um, no, that was it. But so. No one really knows. Okay. And so while he's walking and thinking about what they said to him, he's distracted and notices it got really quiet. And, of course, this is the exact same thing that happened before. He's just, he's thinking about something else, and then he gets jumped. But this time he's getting jumped by a Calibanite lion. Dun, dun, dun. And that's the end of the chapter. So chapter nine. Yeah, I mean, I like the... Um the conversation with the with the watchers is is quite cool. It is kind of cool, yeah. but I didn't know yeah. what they were. So to me, it was just like weird. Yeah, I mean, they are. This, I mean, essentially, yeah. they're, they're this otherworldly power. Um, were they there before the humans landed? 
you know, where, where do they come along? How do they interact with the rest of things? Oh, okay. But, um, you know, that their warnings are, you know, look not to unlock the door that leads to easy power. Um, even even after accepting their oath, they so obviously seem to be on his side, whether for good or bad. But I, f- I found the whole, uh, you know, they're, are they, uh, I mean, are they there? As we read the story, they're you know they're against the the beasts that are there. So are they there as kind of wardens, guardians, yeah. something like that? I didn't I didn't even think about it really until you just mentioned basically about the um, you know telling him not now other people warn him when he meets them later to, about using his power. You know, don't go overboard with it. Not everybody really understands it, and you're new to it. Um, so is it a warning, you know, cause at first I took it as a warning, like, oh, he's going to, you know, he said he was corrupted and he's telling him, you know, don't overdo it. Like, you know, they were worried he was already doing something corrupt or they could be just warning him. Hey, listen, be careful. I never thought yeah. about it as a be careful. I thought about it as more as you're going to be corrupted. Get those glasses and bottles out of here. You know, um, but I mean, maybe, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was just that, but then of course, blam. I mean, but it depends. I mean, if you take a look at, if you look at it as if the whole planet's infused with chaos, right? Um, that that sense of isolation and loneliness as he was walking through the forest. If that was the forest doing that, then his defence against it was his conviction and his faith, almost in himself. Okay. Um, and we see late as we see in in thirty k and forty k. Every time you stand up against chaos, you stand up to it with conviction of what you are and what you believe in. And he dispelled that feeling of isolation by shouting, "You know, I am Zariel." Blah 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 blah. So okay. maybe that feeds into that. Um, but yeah, who knows? I mean, that whole first bit. I mean, you just show how naive Zariel is as well as a fifteen year old. Like, People <laughs> don't do bad things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we were well, all honourable. Nobody would pick bad. No, I mean, come no. on. Yeah, but yeah, no, it was um, a strange chapter, but there was some good stuff in it, certainly. Yeah, it was a nice lead up to him finding the lion. It just seemed a little, you know, I, like I said, yeah. I wasn't certain what exactly what was going on. I was like, okay, so <laughs> you know, because he talked about how they have these weird customs and these weird beliefs, and I don't believe in any of that crap. I mean, it's like, is that just supposed to be another metaphor for we are? you know, doing the imperial truth and I don't believe any of that crap. And then, oh, look, a weird thing shows up that I didn't believe in, but now I do because it's right there in front of me. Yes. I, you know, that's what it seemed like to me. And I was like, okay, I, I don't know. All right, whatever. Let's just move to chapter eight, I guess. <laughs> yeah, might as well, yeah. Um, all right. A so, spined lion. Oh, yes. Well, this, yeah, chapter nine. So the lion attacks... Um, and this this thing is just like totally over the top. It's just it is uh it is really powerful. It's got you know, what is how did this thing let's see. Its body was wide and powerful. Leonine only in the fact that it was a quadruped with a mane of black blade like spines growing from behind its armored head. Each of its each of its limbs was sheathed in glistening plates of natural armor that had a quality of rock, yet the pliability of flesh. Claws like knives extended from its front paws, and twin fangs like the mightiest cavalry sabers produced or uh, protruded from its upper jaw. Um, and then he says, Harold wondered if the figures of how many people it had slain were inflated. 
But he goes. <laughs> he realized in one terrible moment that he was. It wasn't. Um, this thing is just frightening. It really. It's yeah. just an absolute beast. Yeah, he's shooting um, it. It doesn't seem to care. Yeah, I mean he's shoot. He's shooting it with um, uh, rounds with explosive cores designed to detonate deep inside the target's body. So they're like mini bolt guns. Right. He's using here as well, um, and he's got a. You know, he's got a, a chainsaw as well. He's he's well armed. <laughs> yeah, just just nothing seems to be happening to it's this hitting, beast. Yeah, it's hitting this guy's this thing's armor, and it doesn't seem to be hurting him at all. It doesn't even seem to phase it. The lion's fangs go through the armor and go through his shoulder, and he's pinned. Yeah, by the teeth through the armor and like to the ground, and he starts to freak out, and he's holding the head at bay, trying not to get completely chomped up, and then all of a sudden, like it goes into bullet time. Everything yep. stops, and suddenly his arm and gun are inside the lion. Um, he can see his whole anatomy. There's what else happens in this thing? It was just it was it was the most bizarre thing. It was like suddenly, see, yeah, he, yeah, that like the beast becomes incorporeal almost to his vision. He can see the blood pumping around its body and the foul energy um, that brought it into existence. Um, each beat of the lion's heart is a dull thudding boom. Yep. Uh, and it, yeah, and he, yeah, and he can even see his own. So he looks down at his own flesh and sees his broken ribs, fractured ribs, yeah, ends and and all that as well. And that's when he, yeah, pushes his pistol through the be- the beast and just and launches those explosives inside of it. Pull the trigger right next to his heart because it's not doing enough to get through the armor. That's just crazy. It's like he becomes ethereal and then just goes reaches right in next to his heart and then starts pulling the trigger on the gun. And so he blows up, and he blows up from the inside out. I was like, oh. So he can't even bring home a souvenir like they're supposed to cut a part off because it all blowed up. <laughs> so he takes the head um, with it. You know, He's in pain. He's in shock. He's bleeding. He's wounded. He cuts off the head and starts carrying it back because the, the horse is dead too, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Horse got... Eight, I think, right at the start. But then he, on his way back, you know, he had triumphed. He would never be complacent. He would prove his worth. He earned a right to a bit of pride, you know, because he never takes pride in his accomplishments. He's never been, you know, he's not very proud. No, no absolutely not. So he's entitled a bit of pride. He's going to remember this. Yeah, I like um, I like it wasn't too long, the fight. No, it was quick and tight. It- and happen quick. And I think that was quite cool. Um, and even then, it still had the lion. It seemed like the the cabin light lion was um, toying with him a little bit. Um, and it and it didn't feel like a normal creature when it was. It was slightly uh, unworldly. Yes. Um, which which allowed it to be more than just a simple fight. Um, and then the nature of his power coming out was awesome. And we've we've not seen psychic powers used like that at all. No, because is, is, cool. is this before the ban? Is this this is all before Magnus and stuff? Oh yeah, right? this is way yeah yeah, and this is you know before the the the, the Great Crusades got into full swing really. Uh, and then well, and then this fifteen-year-old who's had these massive long um, teeth through his shoulder that have dented all his armor gets up, wipes his armor down a bit, cuts the head off a lion, which must be huge. And then just walks off whistling with his two broken ribs and <laughs> and everything else. I was like, hmm, maybe not. <laughs> Dude, he won. At this point, he could have walked on water. 
Yeah, but the, the the miles and miles and miles back to the yes. back to the rock. Yeah, but so he gets back to the he gets back there and he gives the uh, before getting home. You know, he brings the head to the head of the town and they oh, yeah. patch him up and give him a horse and he you know does all that and so he uh 39 day journey back to Alderuk. I'm don't know if there's a significance in the number. No, I know of just a long time. And uh so he gets home and he's excited to get home. This is weird thing. <laughs> Basically they all expected him to die. Yeah, yeah, they'd all accepted it. Yeah. And so um, Atticus brings Harry all his stuff, and uh, he go and he he doesn't realize that you know that anything's wrong. But every like you said, everyone else has sort of seen you know basically said their goodbyes to him already. Yes. Um. So then it's weird. Uh, Atticus, Atticus tells him that he's lucky. He's like, "What do you mean I'm lucky?" This room's no better than anybody else's. I'm not, you know, it's not. <laughs> He's not being treated as the hero he wants to be. Right. And he says, "You're, but you get to become a knight. I'm not going to have that chance. There's too many dead, and I'm not going to have a chance to declare a quest. So I'm never going to be a knight. Once all the animals are gone, that's the only way to become a knight. You're the, you're going to be the, you're going to be the only one of us. And. Uh, you know, and Zahariel tells him, we're always going to need knights, you know, don't worry, they're going to still make knights, even if they have to find a different way to do it. It's really nice of him, you know, helping his friend out. <laughs> um, and he goes off, and then, okay, and then suddenly he goes to the ceremony, he goes to report to the, to them, to tell them about beating the lion, and yeah. they all grab him and start throwing him in the air. And he's like, "What the hell?" And it was like they, they did they attacked him, and then they were like, I, "Apparently, that's the that's like they're you know, once you make it, they throw you in the air a bunch in the bumps, yeah, yeah." So that's the big thing. So Luther comes over and he's laughing. Oh, you looked terrified. You must have thought we were trying to kill you or something. Uh, he apologizes for playing the devil at the first ceremony, which I guess there were those three roles back when yeah. they had the knife to him. You know, he was. I didn't mean to say all those horrible things about you. That was just my job. Um, he goes, they all like a joke. You know, the guys love a good joke because he was so surprised that they were even smiling and stuff like that. And he goes, we need a good joke. And he joke sometimes. He goes, even the lion? He goes, nope. My brother is a man alone. It's always been that way with him. It's not that he lacks a sense of humor. If anything, the reverse is true. You must remember he's as much a genius as he is a great warrior. His mind is a subtle and complex instrument, and his humor is shaped by the same brilliance he exhibits in everything he does. When my brother makes jokes, no one understands them. He tends to pitch them too high for his roughhouse types. They go over our heads. And then a look of sadness briefly passed across Luther's face as he gazed at the lion. And so it was just this, you know, you get a weird insight into him. But it's funny yeah. how Luther thinks he's got them all figured out. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, yeah. I mean, he he looks he 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 almost pities uh, the loneliness that Lionel Johnson must have, right? And he's like, he doesn't at this point in this, he doesn't you can you can't see any resentment in there. You know, he feels sorry for him, um, but you know, and he knows, yeah, I'm overlooked and stuff, yeah. You know, there's, there's not been another man like him. It's you know, it's fine. He can mimic 
animals and everything else. But, you know, I know my place is here with him to be kind of his right hand. Right. And so everything's then, groovy. So now, um, you know, they talk about how Luther would have been the greatest of his age, except the lion showed up. You know, Zaharial's thinking all of this stuff about him. And then it goes, from that point on, he had been condemned to live in the lion's shadow. Now you find that this is interesting. You know, you're hearing about this. Oh, we're not going to have a chance to become knights. You find out that Nimiel had requested a beast hunt right after Zahariel left. And not only did he go out and also kill a beast, but he got back a week before Zahariel did. So not only did he become a knight, but he became a knight first. Because he was approved by the council when he got back, and then and then Zahariel got home a week later. So he beat him, to, and I don't know if that caused any resentment or anything like that. But I just I just thought it was kind of interesting that uh, when he got ahead and beat him like that, there's almost no mention from Zahariel. It's just it's a quick mention. Oh, you'd gotten back, and yeah, he had done it first. Let's move along. Yeah. You know, remember in the beginning of the of the book, he was saying how whenever Nemiel won, he cheered him on as loud as anybody else. Yeah, and lack of it here. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Um, Master Ramiel comes over and gives him one of these weird congratulations. You know, just uh, you know, some little you know, he's like, yes, and just remember, blah blah blah, blah and goes on. They're both like, he's like, whatever. And then <laughs> it, was, it was like this weird, bizarre, like. Yep, the, you know, the crazy man came to talk to me. But then Cypher comes up, and he actually tells him that he thinks Ramiel will be the next Cypher when the lion becomes the Grandmaster. And then he looks over at Zahariel and says, oh, you know what? Don't repeat that. Shut up. <laughs> it's a secret. Uh, yeah. He's like, you know, um, you know, I've, I've, maybe I've had a few two cups, many too, you know, too much wine, so I, you know, I shouldn't be talking like that. So he's like, don't worry about it. I'm not going to tell him. And then Cypher leaves. It's weird, Cypher, actually, that's the last time he ever sees him. Yeah. Because once the, once the lion it becomes Grandmaster, he hands over his post, declares a quest, leaves. And he left, like, he's like, I'm leaving the next day or whatever day. You know, it was three days they waited or something like that, how they normally do it. Something like that, yeah. But when he left, he got up and just left early in the morning before anyone was, like, awake. And then no one ever saw him again. That's a weird ending for one of these guys. Well, the old fluff for Dark Angels was they were based on American Indians. Um, and I suppose if you go back to some of the old American oh, okay, Indian tribes, the old boys who were too old to keep up would either hang back or would they would sacrifice themselves in some way to not hold up everyone else. So maybe this is a, that's a throwback to that. Oh, okay. I don't know. Potentially. Uh, And then what else is left here? Okay. So say for lion comes up and talks to him and, uh, and he knows that, you know, he's basically said something when I become the grandmaster and Zahara's like, what, what are you talking about? He's like, listen, don't play games. It's like I could hear you talking over here. Yes. You could, yeah. Everyone forgets how good I can hear. Well, because that you know you get to throw that extra nice thing in there. So and then it's uh, I like this part though on here when he tells him you know you're going to be grandmaster. You must feel important. 
Mm. And uh, the lion looks at him, you know, you, you should feel honored, you know. Um, what is it? He asks, if, he asks, Harold, do you feel any different now that you're a knight? And he's like, oh, yeah. Honored, proud of my achievements. He's like, and that's good. But you haven't changed. And that's what he, talk, that, that he talks about that. Uh, and this goes back to, once again, to Harold's promise in the beginning to keep, to remember his roots and keep to his his oaths and stuff like that. He says, uh, the lion says, you are still the same person you were before you killed the lion. You've crossed the yes. line, but it does not change who you are. Don't forget that. A man may be dressed up in all manner of fancy titles, but he must not let it change him or else ego, pride, and ambition will be his undoing. No matter what grand title is bestowed upon you, to thine own self be true, Zahariel. Do you understand? And he's like, I think so. And he goes, I hope you do because it's an easy thing to forget for all of us. And then he says, we're, we're brothers because we've... Uh, yeah, well, it's easy to forget for all of us. Yeah, the lion's acutely aware of what that could do to a Primarch, even though he doesn't know he's a Primarch. Yeah, but a, a being of his abilities. Yeah, because basically he does. I mean, doesn't he? You know, I mean, it's, yeah. When you start to believe what everybody says about you, you start to think you can. You, you know, you you rule. And yeah. I guess I mean, yeah. Can you imagine a Primarch that's truly lost himself that way? Yeah, it would be a, a frightening thing. It could maybe it was a frightening thing, and we just don't know about it because all the records are gone. Maybe. <laughs> Sorry, I don't bring that up forever. Maybe it's that been redacted. Me off. Been redacted. There you go. Um, and then the lion you- asks him, oh, actually, a really important question uh, here, and he asks him if he thinks the beasts are evil. Yes. And uh, he says. Uh, because there's something wrong with it. I don't know exactly what it was, but there's something just not right about it. There's more than just an animal there. And he goes, you're very perceptive because there is something wrong with them. And he's like impressed. And then, he, oh, yeah, here's the here's the great part. I, I love these scenes with the lion because you actually get a nice scene where you get a Primark talking about something that's not prepping for a battle. Yes. You know, um, there is something wrong with the beast. I don't know what it is. But they are not just some other race of beasts like horses, foxes, or humans. They're aberrations, twisted mistakes wrought from some early form that has not yet had the good grace to die out on its own. Can you imagine what it must be like to be so singular a creature? To go through life knowing, even on some animal instinctual level, that you are alone and that will never be more of you? Think how maddening it must be. The beasts were not driven by hunger. They were insane, driven to madness by their very uniqueness. Trust me, Zahariel, we are doing them a favor by destroying them all. That, you know, it almost sounds like he just described himself. No, it just sounded like he described the emperor. Oh. Yeah. I, I mean, potentially himself, but, um, but we, you know, we know later on that he's got 17 brothers. Right. The, uh, oh, the but I'm saying, but his team. life on this planet yeah, has been... Yeah, at this time, certainly, that, that this echoes whole, in that as well. And doesn't this whole... The whole story on this planet echoes the Emperor's story so far. I mean, it really kind of uh, does. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's almost... Just, yeah, as you were saying, there's almost too much. Because yeah. you can just draw it all into everything. Well, you know why? Because of circles within circles on a spiral, on a going spiral. around and around, and the same things happening, and the same patterns just going over and over again. I mean, that's that's if 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 
if you want to put it all together, I'll put it all together, and I'll just say, yeah, this guy's a yeah. genius. Every part of this is just designed. Just or, to, or, yeah, maybe too clever. And if it's if it's like that, you know, it, I don't know. I mean, it could be that way, but we'll find out. So then, uh, oh, and then he tells you, yeah, yeah, you know, he wants to know how he killed it someday, and he says, uh, there are those who are upset you killed the last of the lions. Luther is one of them. Why? Because he always wanted to kill one. Now we'll never get the chance. Uh, all right, chapter 11. The knights under Ramiel, you know, are over there, and they're getting ready for this final attack on the Citadel. And uh, there's all this artillery going on overhead. I like how he says he's getting ready, and there's just this lights, the sky's going up, and all that, all the combat is just between the long artillery, just lighting up the sky. And he's looking for his place, <laughs> and they're getting ready to be attacked, and uh, the siege master looks over at him, and he's like... Uh, you, you may want to do something about your uniform. And he's like, what? He's all in like nice, bright, shiny whites. And he's like, yeah, it's a night fight. Um, <laughs> you may want to muddy your clothes because you're the standout target, um, which I just thought was great. So he goes and he's, you know, pulls off his robes and dips it in the mud and puts it back on. Um, yeah, he's pretty naive. Yeah. And then you get the uh, – and then, you know, Nemiel's already there, so you get the whole – we're about to go into battle thing. This is, you know, George Clooney and Brad Pitt are both here about to go, you know. Hey, you can use yeah. that fancy sword of yours. And then they say how uh, the lion had a sword for him made out of the the Caliban lion's tooth. Yeah. That's pretty cool. cool <laughs> That's a cool sword, exactly. Um, but then it's funny because he tells him that. Uh, here's your chance to use that fancy sword of yours. Zahariel nodded, ignoring the thinly cloaked barb of jealousy in his cousin's tone at the mention of his sword. His hand drifted instinctively to the weapon. The hilt and grip were plain and unassuming, bare metal and leather. So it's talking about the blade, but it's like, oh, you're just jealous. You're yeah. jealous. You know? Is he jealous? I don't know. You can't tell with this guy anymore. You really can't. No, he's getting a bit mixed up. So they head off to the breach. They're heading off. You know, they, they're blowing a hole in it. They've got to get up to this place. They've got to get it blown open. Um, this, I, this, I think, is important. As, again, and this pops up as um, another idea of, of, of writing the histories and telling the stories. Uh, right. Afterwards, in the annals of the Order, the Chronicles re- would record it as a decisive moment in the history of Caliban. The defeat of the Knights of Lupus would be characterized as a victory made in the name of human progress. Lionel Johnson's leadership would be praised, as would Luther's bravery in leading the main assault. The Chronicles would write fulsomely of the white surpluses of the Order's knights, or of how they gleamed in the moonlight as their owners charged in daredevil fashion toward the enemy's defenses. The reality, of course, was somewhat different. And this is where he's going around and, uh, you know, everything's going around, getting blown away on him. Um, it's he, he says this isn't like hunting. He goes, he was trained to hunt and do stuff face-to-face. Yeah, honorable uh, combat and all that. Yeah, he's concerned that he might get killed and never see the face of his his killer. Or that, you know, it's just, it, it's, something's not right about this style of fighting for me. And as he's running, he sees all the soldiers dying and he's worried. He's like, uh-oh, this is bad. There's too, yeah. there's too many of us dying on the way here that we might not. And this is one of the main assaults because we've, we've we've had it described earlier that you know right. the lion the lions leading the uh, the uh, 
the diversion attack at the north and a small band and and no one's happy about that but he's supposed to draw off all the fire so these other yeah. forces can come in yeah luther pitched a fit wanted to be there with him he's like no you got to be at the south and they also have guys coming in at the east and the west they've got siege towers on one side yeah they got artillery on another side they have all these different tactics from all these different spots to sort of confuse them and then figuring when they see the lion they'll just assume that's where the main danger is and they'd be right and they'll divert all their forces to that that's sort of the plan so then we get into chapter uh 12. chapter yeah chapter 12 and uh, this is that part that I said. it describes how he'd been trained to tell the by the sound of him what what types of artillery was being shot past him but in the heat of the battle and people dying and screaming left and right, he just couldn't remember that. That wasn't that. Yeah. You know what? When people are dying and bullets all over, it's hard to access those little bits of information. Um, but so they're like, get down. It's a mine. And, you know, Luther's like, nope. Shoots the mine as it's falling down as he threw it at him from up oh, there. Yeah. This is Luther's chapter. Oh, yeah. He blows it up. He's, you know, seriously, he's shooting stuff out of the sky. He said, go, go, go. They go to the breach. You know, the Knights Lupus are attacking them from left and right. Uh, Zahario's almost killed. And then they see there's that breach in the wall. The artillery has blown open a hole in the wall. And he's like, that's it. We got this. And he realizes the war's over because there's just not enough of them in there. Yeah, once once the once the defenses have gone, that's it. Yeah. So uh, Nemiel's first through. And only like seven knights actually make it through, or eight, seven or eight knights initially. Um, and uh, it's really great when he gets up there and he feels like, I was the first through before anybody. I'm going to get my own banner. And he's like, yeah, there's you looking just for glory. And he's like, well, pff, we can't all focus on our duty. So <laughs> it's that back and forth again. Uh, then they bring forth the cannons. I love the weird description of fighting under a banner. Did you did you remember this part? Yeah, I just looked at the, the it wasn't just a flag or identifying marker. Right. Yeah, it's it's this, the whole fight is a weird mix of sci-fi and fantasy. It's a it's it's a, a medieval siege but with fa- with um sci-fi weapons and things. Right. It's a really strange fight, and the way they go to war is very medieval with the banner and everything else, but right. with these explosive bolts and explosive artillery and everything else. It's really cool. And I am read much quite like this before, actually. Yeah. And, like, oh, here's that banner party. Yeah, like you said, it wasn't a flag. It's a symbol of everything the order stood for. Courage, honor, nobility, and justice. To bear such a symbol was a great honor, but to fight beneath it was something special, something that Harriel understood was of supreme significance. And I said he feels this, you know, behind the banner. You know, and that's just great, though, because that's kind of what it was supposed to be. Like, if you ever watched those, like, yeah. Sharps rifles and stuff, man. You don't let the banner fall. Exactly. They had a whole movie, a whole Sharps episode was about uh, losing a banner and having to get it back. Yeah. I mean, it was just great stuff, and it really, it really did. I mean, I liked it. It would really give you that... That feel. I enjoyed that that bit there. Um, so the cannons focus on the inner wall, and they blow open that, and they charge through, and they get in there, and what in the heck is going on here? Cages. Lots of cages. And they've got the beasts in them. 
Like they've been collecting them and keeping them. Shock! Here. These Knights of the Lupus guys are, uh, don't look quite so uh, friendly. Normal now? <laughs> yeah, nope. So they keep, and then there's a hundred Knights Lupus standing ready to, def- you know, for the battle. Sartana's standing right at the front, and then he's warriors of the order. These are our lands, and this is our fortress. You are not welcome here. You were never welcome here. What might once have been preserved our uh, what might once have preserved our world is at an end, and then for that you will die. <laughs> nice Goldfinger moment, and then he yep. pulls the chain. All the monsters come out, and then his knights Lupus just take off out the back door, <laughs> and that's exactly what they do. Yeah, you know, I mean, seriously, he couldn't have been any more of a cartoon villain had he twirled his mustache before he, he needed a goatee. Exactly. <laughs> um. And then he takes off, and so the beasts are there. Um, I like this. He said, this wasn't a battle for honor, fought with the appropriate tradition or custom. This is a basic fight for survival. Yeah. And then they kill the bear monster. Harry realizes how his sword works really well against these, because it cuts through, the Calibanite lion tooth cuts through anything. So he's able to hurt the bear. Um, They're just shocked that they would keep them there. Like, this makes no sense. And they're just all sort of confused, and then they just basically like, well, there's more monsters to kill, and they rush back into battle. And then uh, chapter 13, the last book of this part, I think is I think is really interesting. Um, you get to see Zahariel uh, gets to see the lion uh, and Luther fighting with one of these beasts. And this is fantastic. I mean, this really was fun. I enjoyed this part. Um, you know, the the beast is in the courtyard. It's tearing everybody up. People are surrounding it, trying to catch it. The lion just comes running in. Like and he's like, it, so Harry looks at him. He's like, "Holy crap! Is he scary?" Yes. You know. And they do. They run around. He grabs it, jumps up on the back of its neck. He's holding it. He's hitting it in the back of the head. Uh, Luther's running underneath it, slashing at it with a sword. I mean, this is. You know, they're tag-teaming this thing, and they're tearing it apart. You know, he goes under, the lion jumps up on top. Yeah. And they're doing all this kill, and then they kill it. And when the, when they kill this thing, um, everybody starts chanting, lion. And Zahariel looks, and he sees this one moment of intense jealousy on Luther's face. Yes. The first moment we really see. And if he's and if he's really seeing it, if he's reading him right, it's like oh, but dude, that's yeah. got to, You know, at some point, I can see it's got to, You know, they both just ran in there. They went to this battle. They did this. Luther hurt it first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but he gets no credit for it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know, and it probably has more to do with the lion. Him made the plan, and they were just about to take. You know, they had pretty much had it won here, but it doesn't matter. He's just he's had enough. So uh, yeah. the lion basically looks around and says, anyone who would throw these monsters at us and run are no longer worthy of being called knights. They're no longer being worthy of called anything. Um, just kill them all. And then the Which lion, is handy. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, he busts open the gates. I mean, the lion literally just smashes open their gates. Uh, everyone goes right around. Zahariel uh, and... Uh, Nimi will go running up this staircase and they come across a library. It is ten times the size of the library at Alderuk. 
I mean, they said they were, you know, scholars. So just having this huge mm. thing. Lord Sartana's there, and he tells them that their quest is wrong. Once you clear out all the beasts, what then? And then he says how they broke by tradition by letting commoners join and become equals. That was a big mistake. Um, and then, you know, they get together. That's when they decide they're going to, you know, wipe out. They, he says basically that our job was to protect the people from the beast. When you wipe out all the beasts, what's going to be left for us to do? What are we going to do when there's no great crusade? Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's right there. It's once yeah. again played out on a smaller scale. Um, I was wondering if there was a bit of a parallel to the lodges. Here, and just, here let, me, let me say this one out. He says the order was the start of all the problems. The order let in anybody and said yeah. they were all equals when they were together. Yeah, he's comparing the, uh, the order to the lodges, yeah. And then, and then they get well, it in their head, you know, that they're going to go and they get it in their head that they're going to do this part and they're going to wipe out all, everything that's not like them. And he goes, and, and then what are they going to do when they're done? He's, uh, you know, they're, um, it's just, it's really, you'll be empty, you'll be less than nothing. That's, uh, it's really, he just really sort of slams it home on them. And this is the exact argument that the Space Marines were having, you know. Um, it will fall on each other like a pack of raptors if there's nothing else to fight against. I won't live to see this, but I look to the future and I see only darkness. I see kin strife and civil war. I see brother turning against brother. I see blood. And for the lack of having better ways to channel your anger, all the lack of the beasts. This is the future your order is creating for us. Though admittedly, your zealot of a leader was moved by the best of intentions. And I'm just like, oh, man. And then he kills himself. (laughs) He's like, you're not taking me alive. And then he kills himself. Yep. He knows, uh, yeah. He knows it's all over. And so then he's dying, and then he says to him, you know the expression about darkness, don't you? The road to darkness is paved with men's good intentions. Yeah. And perhaps someone should have mentioned it to the lion. Good intention or not, Lionel Johnson will end up destroying Caliban. Of that I have no doubt. Okay. Well, yeah, and could the, yeah, that could be darker in the future. And he keeps thinking about it though. So Harriel's got that now on his mind. It's sort of it's stuck been implanted. In there, yeah. It's stuck in there. In his darkest moments, Harriel would sometimes wonder if their meeting that day had represented a missed opportunity. Perhaps he could have passed the message on to the lion, or he could have been more aware of the force of emotion in Luther. Zahario might have understood that brotherhood is no guarantee of harmony, that no matter the closeness of the bonds between men, violence and betrayal were always possible. You know, uh, and it was basically, you know, he should have warned the lion that day that, you know, you need to talk to Luther. Yeah. And he didn't, and he feels bad about it. Um, but I like how no matter how close, violence and betrayal are always possible. Isn't this the kid who just said before that men will always choose good? Yeah, if given yeah. a chance. Yeah, when he killed the lot before he killed the lion. He really is a teenager, isn't he? Yeah, he's um, yeah, is not is a very mixed up lot of stuff going on with him. Yeah, no kidding. It certainly is. All right, and that's the end of book two.
Beasts. They've cleared out the beasts. And now we're on to book three, Imperium. But I think that's going to be a book for another episode. Indeed. It's funny how much this is like the first book I read that I really didn't care for. But I guess that makes for a little more conversation rather than, oh, that was great. Yeah, that was great. You know, um, because there's stuff that we like that we can really pick apart that we have been picking apart. But then there's that extra stuff to talk about. when (laughs) This didn't go right here. So, uh, folks, hope you enjoyed uh, part one, books one and two of uh, Descent of Angels. Uh, For those of you, hopefully if some of you are going to Adepticon, we'll see you there. Yeah. And uh, other than that, we'll be back in a few weeks with uh, books three and four. And we will uh, finish off Descent of Angels. Greg? Yes. Fantastic job, man. It's all good. All right. So until until next time, the Emperor protects. Death to the False Emperor. Congratulations on completing another episode of After Eleanor. David and Greg would love you to come and chat some more about the Horus Heresy in the forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or on the Facebook page. Just search for After Eleanor. You can email us if you wish at greg at garagehammer.net or david at garagehammer.net. Finally, you can catch us on Twitter at After Eleanor, at Child of Fang for Greg and at garagehammer for David. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit the support page on the main website at garagehammer.net and you can leave a positive review on iTunes. In addition, you can tell all your friends to come and join the community. Many thanks for listening and until the next episode, may the Emperor protect you.